Now, it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. The civil rights activist Elmore Nickelberry has died at the age of 92. Nickelberry was among the longest surviving Memphis sanitation workers who fought for better working conditions in 1968. And he marched with the Reverend Martin Luther King during the sanitation workers' strike that led to King's assassination. NPR's Debbie Elliott has this remembrance. Collecting trash was a nasty and thankless job in Memphis back in the 1950s and 60s, as Elmore Nickelberry told me in 2018. When I first started, it was rough. I had to tow tubs on my head, on my shoulder, under my arms. I mean, you put it on your head, all that stuff ran down your shoulder. After hauling trash tubs all day, he'd get maggots in his clothes and shoes. But the city didn't let black sanitation workers clean up before going home. The showers were reserved for white workers. So Nickelberry would take the bus home a filthy mess. Most of the time, they would call us boys. We'd get on the bus. They were looking at old garbage man. And I know I wasn't old garbage man. I just work in garbage. Garbage work was also dangerous work. In early 1968, two black trash collectors were crushed to death when they climbed into the back of a garbage truck to escape a storm. Workers organized to demand better conditions and higher pay. When the city rejected their demands, they walked off the job, marching downtown with signs that declared, I am a man. Here's how Nickelberry described their mission to NPR in 2017. We were fighting for equal payment and equal rights from the sanitation department. And at the invitation of the Reverend James Lawson, a Memphis pastor instrumental in the civil rights movement, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. came to town to support the sanitation workers' strike. He encouraged them to keep up the fight despite violent resistance and hundreds of arrests. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. A day after that speech, King was assassinated. Fifty years later, Nickelberry was still working for the sanitation department, driving his truck along a route that passed the Lorraine Motel, where King was killed. He called King one of the greatest men he'd ever known. A man coming to Memphis, my name coming to Memphis to help, him, help the sanitation department. And then the man get killed. I don't like to talk about it. You feel mighty bad, a man come help you, and then he come killed. That's bad. After King's assassination, the workers got showers, uniforms, better wages, and African-American supervisors.
This was the first Black Lives Matter. Civil rights attorney Van Turner is the former president of the Memphis NAACP. He says Nickelberry and others who dared declare, I am a man, took great risk to challenge the system. He says Nickelberry was long an inspiring figure at annual MLK events in Memphis. Dynamic man, very humble, soft-spoken, but he had a, a fire in his belly and he, and he still, you know, was such a leader for all of us who come behind him and stood on his shoulders. Elmore Nickelberry retired from the Memphis Sanitation Department in 2018 after 64 years of service. You have a good night now. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. New Year's Day is typically the day to resolve to do some things differently. There's a lot of research on what changes can lead to healthier living. Joining us now is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Allison, so you've been covering health and wellness for a long time. So what are the things that can really make a difference? You know, we are always hoping there's something magical on the horizon, some superfood, some kind of new exercise trend that is going to catapult us to great health, right? But the reality is much less sensational. I'd say increasingly a lot of the science points to six or seven key habits. And these are things people have heard about before. eh? It's what we eat, how we move, how much we sleep, having strong social connections and purpose. When you put all these together, they are a powerful combination. Whether you're thinking about preventing heart disease, dementia, diabetes, and to some extent even depression, these habits really can make a difference. Yeah, I've always said that, you know, we, we know what to do. The thing is starting and sticking to it. Absolutely. I mean, I'd say modern society kind of steers us in the wrong direction. Our food supply is full of junk. Our communities typically are not built to encourage walking. The pace of our lives can feel stressful and leave us kind of feeling alone. So I want to talk about some of the longest lived communities around the globe. This is something that I know you and I have been thinking about and reporting on this year. Yeah, one of my favorite documentaries and books this year was Living to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. Uh, We both spoke to the author, so let's listen to a bit of your reporting. One of the most counterintuitive things about the men and women who thrive into their 90s and beyond is that they're not really trying to be healthy. Here's National Geographic explorer Dan Buettner, who identified five places around the globe with the highest concentration of centenarians. He calls them blue zones. People in blue zones, they're not thinking about their diet or an exercise program. They're not doing anything except living their lives. Lots of blue zoners live on islands. There's Sardinia off the coast of Italy, Ikaria, a Greek island in the Aegean Sea, and Okinawa, a chain of islands a thousand miles from Tokyo. One of the things they all have in common is the way they eat. Simple foods they tend to cook at home. The five pillars of any longevity diet in the world are whole grains, greens or garden vegetables, tubers like sweet potatoes, nuts as a snack, and then beans. About a cup of beans a day is associated with an extra four years of life expectancy. They're not vegetarians, but they eat about one-tenth the amount of meat found in the typical American diet. There's a little cheese, a little fish, and they cook with lots of aromatic herbs and plants, often from their own gardens. It's the peasant food 
But the important thing is they know how to make that peasant food taste delicious, and that's the secret. When it comes to exercise, they don't go to the gym. They build movement into their daily lives. Take their gardens. Food isn't just a source of nourishment. The act of gardening keeps them bending and squatting and using their muscles. You have a garden that nudges you to weed and water and harvest almost every day. So they're weaving activity and movement into just everyday life. Funny thing, Allison, I have one of those uh, Japanese sweet potatoes waiting for me as soon as we wrap up this interview. So I can't Ah, wait to get to it. It's true. I absolutely do. I can smell it from the other room. Now, uh, I plan to be around half a century from now at 100. Um, The thing is, though, not everyone, though, lives in these great, big, beautiful blue zones. That's right. I mean, we can't, but there are things we can borrow. Uh, One thing I've been trying to do, inspired by the Blue Zones, is I've been spending more time on my yoga mat. When I have, you know, five or ten minutes on days when I'm working from home, I try to get on the floor and bend and stretch. And this is something that Butner saw happening naturally in Japan. In Okinawa, people sit on the floor. They sit on tatami mats on very low tables. I sat for two days with a 104-year-old woman who got up and down off the floor 30 times. Those are squats. That makes stronger lower bodies. It makes for better balance. It makes for more open hips and flexibility, probably healthier backs and much fewer falls. And this is really key because as we age, A, falls are responsible for a a lot of injury. In fact, they're the leading cause among older people. So no matter how old you are, why not begin to build a habit of building strength training into your everyday life? Yeah, so we've talked about a healthy diet, exercise, and strength training. What else can we borrow from those blue zones? I think another through line is that the people in the Blue Zones tend to form tight social bonds. In Okinawa, for instance, there are small groups called moais where people tend to really rely on each other. They show up for each other. To some extent, if you're living in a remote area, disconnected from modern life and conveniences, people need to be more reliant on neighbors and close friends. But I think it's telling, A, at a time when we hear so much about loneliness and disconnection, that people who live in more traditional communities and live more simply have engineered connection into daily life. All right, so what are those workarounds then? I mean, how do we form these bonds in our communities? Something I was really struck by this year is that in addition to reporting on these blue zones, I also covered a study. It was published in Nature Mental Health. It was this very comprehensive look at depression. Researchers tracked hundreds of thousands of people for years to find out how these very habits we've been talking about, diet, exercise, sleep, social connections, were tied to episodes of depression. And they found that people who maintained most of the healthy habits had about a 50% lower risk of depression. Now, of course, a lot of people need medication to help with depression, but I think it is striking because it's a reminder of the importance of daily routines and everyday choices and habits. Yeah, so that means that these habits then can influence not just physical health, but mental health. Yeah, and I think there's a challenge here. I mean, think about it. Society is always pushing us or nudging us kind of in the wrong direction. We scroll on social media instead of engaging with others. But these studies are a reminder that we sometimes have to push back against societal norms in order to be healthy and happy. All right, uh, Allison, hopefully we have this conversation in 2073 as well. NPR's health (laughs) correspondent, Allison Aubrey. Allison, thanks. I look forward to it. Thank you, A. Now. It's the same way with whiskey as it was was used, according to the record of white supremacists themselves, in dealing with people who are called Indians. 
Sit down, chief. We're going to have a Thanksgiving day. We're going to thank, give thanks for all of the wonderful things that have been done for both me and you by our maker, by the great spirits. And, in fact, I brought some spirits with me. It's in a bottle. You never had anything like this before, but you will want it after you get it. It's called fire water. It's full of spirits. It'll give you spirit like you have never had before, chief. And the chief said, well, what's wrong with just pure water from the river, from the great streams of our lands? Say, oh, yeah, but you never had nothing like this. This is something we made in a factory. It's got water in it. No mistake about that. But we got a little alcohol and a few other stuff, little other stuff that I've added here. It'll pep you up, give you another perspective on looking at the mountains all together. Mm, might be good stuff. So he gives it to the chief. And at the same time, now, the chief is a little suspicious. So he's drinking right along with the chief. So that means everything must be okay. So he's drinking. I'm drinking. Next thing you know, the chief is under the table. For our next story, let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think holiday season? Family? Gatherings? Parties? And what's the one thing that is usually constant in all of that? For a lot of people, it's alcohol. Holiday season and alcohol are best buddies, but the hangover is terrible, especially on the first day of the new year. That's where dry January comes in. What does it mean? It's about quitting alcohol for a whole month, the first month of the year. It started as a public health campaign. Now it's a fun trend. But why is dry January so popular? And what happens to your body when you quit alcohol for a whole month? Our next report tells you. New Year, New Me. Now, how many times have we heard that? We all make New Year's resolutions like going to the gym, saving money, ditching doom scrolling, and quitting alcohol. And the last one's turned into quite a trend. It's called Dry January. You swear off alcohol for a month. That's for the month of January. One bids farewell to clinking glasses and spirited toasts. The trend is not new. It was actually started in 2013 by a British woman. Her name is Emily Robinson. She signed up for a half marathon in February. So she thought, why not stay away from alcohol in January? When she told her friends, they were fascinated. So Robinson explored the idea more. She decided to take a job in a charity. It was called Alcohol Change UK. And that's where this trend really boomed. It turned into a public health campaign, and 10 years later, it's now a fun and trendy challenge. More and more people are embracing it every year. In 2013, 4,000 people signed up for the challenge in the UK. In 2024, 8.5 million people have signed up. Americans, too, are welcoming it. 39% think moderate drinking is unhealthy, an 11% rise since 2018. Even the French are on board. 60% of French citizens want to try it in 2024, and that's left the French government in hot water. Dry January is the centre of a political row. Health experts want the government to support it, but the French state isn't on board. And Emmanuel Macron is the most pro-alcohol French president since World War II. Apparently, according to him, a meal without wine is sad. In reality, it's anything but sad for your body. Alcohol consumption has all sorts of side effects and long-time consumption can be bad for your liver, for your kidneys, for your heart. 
Alcohol abuse is one of the leading causes of mortality and no level of it is safe. The WHO says so itself. So all those reports about a glass of wine making you better, you better stop believing them. But while alcohol depresses the entire central nervous system during the holidays, it's a reason for cheer. Expectedly, that's when alcohol sales spike. Take India for example. In Kerala, liquor worth 154 crores was sold in just three days around Christmas. New Delhi sold 46 million liquor bottles just in December. So, there's the festive high, but there's also a crashing low the next day. So, does dry January make you feel better? A lot of people swear by it. And yes, there are some positives, like weight loss, better sleep, increased energy and lower blood sugar. The hangover becomes a distant memory. But drinking is like any other addiction. The more you do it, the harder it is to stay away from it. Plus, going cold turkey isn't always a great idea. Because here's a sobering thought. Many may treat it as a reason to binge drink for the rest of the year. So think before you get on board the dry January train. From imprisonment. Any unnatural death in a federal prison requires investigation. I mean, like a homicide or a suicide or an accident. But most deaths in federal prisons are classified as natural deaths, which often means less scrutiny, leaving inmates' families with questions. NPR's Tirza Christopher reports. When Kesha Jackson first heard that something was wrong with her husband, John, she called Forest City Federal Prison, where he was housed. The phone just rang, 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 or it kept going to busy, busy, busy. Six hours later, she still had no answers. Jackson started getting calls from other inmates. What the prisoners were saying to me is that he had been in a special housing unit for three days, banging on the door because he was going in and out of consciousness and he couldn't breathe. And then when the officer came in, he dragged John out into the hallway and tried to give him CPR. John Jackson was pronounced dead soon after. The medical examiner ruled it a natural death. When his medical records came home after he passed away, I saw that it was MRSA. MRSA is a staph infection caused by a type of dangerous drug-resistant bacteria. But it is treatable. John had contracted it after he was moved to the Forest City Federal Prison in 2017. According to his medical records, he still had the infection over two years later. Saying that it's a natural death could sometimes be misleading. I believe that having proper medical treatment could have possibly saved his life. Previous reporting by NPR exposed inadequate health care in federal prisons around the country. According to Bureau of Prison Records we obtained, almost three-quarters of all federal prison deaths have been pronounced natural since 2009. The CDC says natural deaths happen either solely or almost entirely because of disease or old age. But 70% of the inmates who died in federal prison were under the age of 65. After speaking to some of the families of these inmates, NPR found that issues such as medical neglect, poor prison conditions, and a lack of resources were swept under the rug. Meanwhile, family members were left with little information about their loved one's death. The prison doesn't have to contact family members unless it's a matter of life and death. Well, he's dead. So where was the contact? What I'm getting now, I should have been contacted as soon as there was an incident. 
Homer Venters is a federal court monitor of jail and prison health care. He calls debts like Jackson's jail attributable. Things that happen behind bars significantly contributed to the outcome of death, despite the fact that a medical examiner ultimately says it was a natural cause of death. He says that calling a death natural often does not provide the full picture. So we have this very old, antiquated idea that the coroner or medical examiner, when they say a death was from natural causes, that that should somehow determine whether or not people got what they needed behind bars. We found issues at prisons around the country. For instance, an inmate in the Springfield, Missouri Medical Center waited weeks to be treated for bleeding in his digestive tract. He died soon after hospitalization. An inmate in Arkansas complained of stomach pain for a year and a half before his death. His family was not provided with any more details. Another inmate in Missouri died of respiratory failure and his death was pronounced natural. But according to medical examiner records obtained by NPR, his death was later treated as a homicide. But the family was not provided that information and got his autopsy five years later. The BOP is not required to conduct autopsies for natural deaths. But there is something called a mortality review that's done every time an inmate dies. These reviews are supposed to be a reflection of one, how the death was handled, and two, if it was preventable. This information, however, is not shared with the public or even the families. His roommate contacted me on Facebook on that Sunday morning and said he had collapsed that's Celia Wilson. Her brother Lenny had been serving time in the same federal prison as John Jackson. He was on his morning run when he fell over. We didn't hear from BOP until Tuesday. The prison case manager told Wilson there was nothing to worry about. Her brother's lawyer, Allison Guernsey, found different information in her brother's medical records. Celia would say they think that there are signs of life and maybe vitals are getting better. And then we would ask for those medical records, and they wouldn't actually say that. Guernsey is a clinical professor and attorney at the University of Iowa Law Clinic. She had to file public records requests every day for updates on Lenny Wilson's health after the collapse. It was quite difficult to get someone from the Bureau of Prisons to actually tell us what was going on. Two weeks after his collapse, Celia Wilson's brother died. His death was pronounced natural. But the family had no explanation for why an otherwise healthy 61-year-old man just fell over and died. Her brother's cellmate claimed that he had not received help for almost 10 minutes after his collapse. Since his death in June, the family still has not received the mortality review. Here's Homer Venters again. We have left health care and decisions about what's adequate health care to security people. The party line right now is that all the natural causes deaths are unavoidable, and we know that to be simply untrue. The BOP declined NPR's request for an interview, but said that all deaths are investigated thoroughly. NPR also requested mortality review reports for every inmate who died in BOP custody since 2009, but has yet to receive them. Family members like Celia Wilson still want answers. It makes no sense to me, which is why it's so frustrating. There is so much they could have done. It's unfathomable. Tirza Christopher, NPR News.
being down there, one of the interesting things that happened was I was down with family members and comment was made about um, going over white people's homes. And I made a joke, but I was being a bit facetious. And I said, a white person let you in their house? And immediately what ended up happening was people around the table erupted at me and started telling me how ignorant I was and that white people are not all bad and you know you shouldn't think like that and why would you say such a mean thing and everybody around the table is black. And I was taken back a bit and I was shocked because this is not a very difficult thing I noticed to have a conversation. The holidays are often thought of as a time when you're supposed to gather with family. But for a lot of folks, there may be certain family members that they don't want to see. In fact, YouGov conducted a national survey last year in which one in four people said they're estranged from a family member, be it a parent, child, sibling, or grandparent. So joining us to talk about why that might be is Joshua Coleman. He's a psychologist and author of the book Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. Joshua, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Is estrangement becoming more common than it used to be? I think it's becoming more common, and troublingly, I think it's becoming more acceptable and accepted. I think there's a kind of a social contagion that happens through Instagram and TikTok and Reddit where cutting out your toxic family member is becoming sort of an act of personal expression and identity, and rather than what it often is, which is an expression more of, of avoidance. I'm not saying that there aren't places for it. Of course there are. There are abusive, problematic parents or family members who, no matter how well you communicate with them, they're not going to change and they can continue to be abusive and hurtful and destructive in one form or another. But I and my colleagues are working with, with parents and families where that is, is not the case, where these are parents who would do anything, who are willing to do their own therapy, go to family therapy, take responsibility, and they're being told, no, my therapist says you're a narcissist or you're a gaslighter. And it's a huge problem in our society. We have a culture that's very rich in the language of separation and individuation and labeling and diagnosis, but a completely impoverished culture around ideas of connectedness and interdependency and, and mutual reliance. You've been studying this for a while, but I'm interested in how you actually came to be interested in this subject. My understanding is it is partly because you are impacted by estrangement in your own family. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I was married and divorced in my 20s and have an adult daughter who I'm very close to now. Mm -hmm. But there was a period of time in her early 20s where she cut off contact with me in part as a result of my becoming remarried and having children from my second, which is my current marriage, and her feeling somewhat displaced in many ways. And um, so when she was in her early 20s, she had stopped talking to me for really several years, which was easily the most painful, awful thing I've ever been through or hope to go through again. You talk about your own experience being rooted in separation and divorce, but you also talk about the different causes for family estrangement in the U.S. So could you explain more about that? So divorce is huge, mm. but it's not the only cause. Um, what many adult children say is, well, it's a 
the result of abuse, you know, childhood abuse or neglect. And that's certainly in my, my practice, I see that as well. But here's where it gets complicated. Uh, in the past three or four decades, we've radically changed the notion of what we label uh, harmful, abusive, neglectful, traumatizing behavior. Hmm. And so often you have the adult child talking about their childhoods um, as being traumatizing, hurtful, neglectful, et cetera. And the parent going, what are you talking about? You know, I gave you the best childhood imaginable. I would have killed for your childhood. And so they're often really talking past each other in ways. So a lot of my strategy with parents is helping them to learn how to, to blend these two concepts so that they're not so alienated. What are the biggest barriers to parents and their adult children repairing and reconnecting the relationship? Well, I think the biggest barrier on the parent's side is just not realizing how much the culture that they grew up with has changed. The idea that the adult child owes the parent something, that they're going to motivate their adult child through guilt or through feelings of obligation. So my mission has really been helping parents to learn how to, to use the language of the adult child, which is much more based around therapeutic concepts. And I think for those parents who can do that, they typically, um, not always, but often have a good deal of success in reconnecting. You know, some people may be listening and thinking like, hey, like I know somebody in this situation. So, you know, for somebody who wants to support a friend or a loved one who's estranged from their parent or, or maybe another family member, what's the best way they can do that? Well, I think the main thing is not to give sort of stock hallmark advice. Sometimes people, if they're talking to an estranged parent, will say, well, don't worry, they'll be back and they'll remember all the good things you did for them. And the, the truth is that you don't know that. They might not be back. I mean, the majority of estrangements do eventually reconcile, but they don't all reconcile. And sometimes it's a matter of years and it isn't really very therapeutic for people to get false help. I think being willing to hear what they have to say and show compassion and empathy, that's an enormous source of, of support. And I think for, for the adult child, similarly, don't say to them, oh, call your mom or call your dad. You only have one family. It just will cause them to feel misunderstood. We've been speaking with psychologist and author Joshua Coleman. Joshua, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts. A grand jury in Ohio is still weighing whether to indict a woman who had a miscarriage at home. A decision had been expected today, but now it could take a couple more weeks. Brittany Watts is her name. She was nearly 20 weeks pregnant when a doctor informed her that it was no longer viable. Three days later, she miscarried at home. In a world with Roe, Brittany's grief would be private. It would remain between her, her loved ones, and her doctor. But now Brittany is facing criminal charges for abuse of a corpse. We need to discuss this. I want to bring in Dr. Kavita Patel, a clinical physician and former senior policy director under President Obama and former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance still with us. Kavita, can you explain this? How does something as common as a miscarriage even qualify as abuse of a corpse. Yeah, Stephanie, if I could explain it, then we probably would not be here because there are a whole lot of things wrong with this and I'm sure Joyce will get into this. I will say that what I think is troubling is not just that Brittany's 
being brought under these charges and that this is even being discussed. And, and by the way, for something that I don't want to say that her exact circumstance is incredibly <coughs> common because she arrived and came and sought medical care, not once, but twice, and tried to actually understand what she should do. And both times, the first time, they had to actually bring and convene an ethics panel. And again, this is all because of what has happened in kind of the post-Dobbs decision, and, and especially, just to be clear, before what happened in December in Ohio, where they in, really put into place protections for reproductive rights. So put all of that into context, Steph. No, I can't explain it, except to say that now there are women who are worried that if they have miscarriages, that they need to have proof of this and they carry tampons or pads. And, and that is not a dialogue that I ever thought I would have with a patient, that they should also be careful about how they document this incredibly private and grieving circumstance that stays with a woman. Any of us who have gone through a miscarriage remember exact circumstances. And can you imagine that playing out in the media and then to have criminal charges be brought against you? I can, I have been in this circumstance and I cannot imagine documenting, contacting police. Right. I mean, this is crazy. Joyce, can you right. explain this to us from a legal perspective? Yeah, I think crazy does really well to characterize what's going on here. This is a personal tragedy. This is not something that should be playing out in a police station after a woman has been failed by her doctors, not because her doctors wanted to fail her, but because they're now operating in this legal environment where they are personally at risk if they provide the care that she needed. You know, to Kavita's point, there are all of these very narrow distinctions happening here. She's 21 weeks pregnant when this happens. 22 weeks is viability in Ohio. She should have been able to obtain this procedure, but she wasn't. They convened a medical ethics board. They failed to act. And yet again, this is a situation where had she miscarried in the hospital, the fetus would not have been treated as a human body. That, of course, is the distinction here. She would not have been subject to the charges the grand jury has been asked to consider, which is, in essence, tampering with a, course, a corpse. So all, all of this is on very thin ice, legally speaking, which may speak to why the decision by this grand jury has been delayed. Joyce, in Texas, a court just ruled that Texas can now ban emergency abortions, despite federal guidance that says these procedures are specifically designed to save women's lives. What are we to make of this? Right. Um, you know, same uh, verse, just uh, in another state, right? This is a situation where DOJ, after the Dobbs decision, issued guidance that said that under EMTALA, this law that provides certain sorts of rules about how federally funded hospitals need to operate, it reinforced this notion that emergency rooms are required to provide life-sustaining care. And in some cases, that's an abortion, right? We see that play out in Brittany Watts's case, where she's denied one. So this was the Biden administration's rather uncontroversial proposition. But Texas, of course, challenged it. And the impact here is the same as we're seeing with these other laws. Something that should be clear isn't clear. Doctors lack clarity on when they're entitled to perform abortions in medical emergencies in order to save women's lives. And yet again, women are being progressively denied care because of this lack of certainty, this cloudiness that Texas and other states are forcing onto the legal environment.
Then, Kavita, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Women around the world are watching all of this and they're taking action. The New York Times is reporting that there's been a huge increase in orders of abortion pills from women who are not even pregnant. What does that tell you about the kind of atmosphere that we are in and how women are reacting to it? I think they're reacting like anybody should, that they need to do everything possible, no matter what state you're in, to protect their own health care. And this is also just to remind people listening that this is because one of those medication abortion pills, mifepristone, is being called to question and brought to the Supreme Court because of a quote-unquote lack of evidence, despite decades of evidence to support the safety of this drug. So it is no wonder, and Steph, I've had patients ask, and I have Gladly, I'm in the state of Maryland, licensed in D.C. as well. I'm happy to write those prescriptions because this is every bit as much of health care as it is when I dispense vaccines, when I give people medication for their high, high blood pressure. So I don't treat it any differently, and women are taking this into their own hands. The fact that we are having to do this and that women are looking towards crossing you know, they're not even able to have these conversations with their doctors in their own states because of the fears. If you're in Ohio, if you're in Texas, if you're in many of these states, some of these people feel like they can't even have that conversation. So they are accessing it through other channels, all legal, by the way, but it doesn't shock me whatsoever. And, and by the way, I've encouraged primary care doctors to have these conversations with women. I will say it's not an accident that Brittany Watts is a woman of color. It is higher likelihood that women of color, especially black women, are not even given options around some of these things, no matter what state they're in. And the policing of black women's bodies, all of this adds up to a formula that doesn't shock me that medication abortions for preventive, just having that prescription on hand are in high demand today. Dr. Kavita Patel, thank you for being here. Joyce, thank you as well. Black babies cost less. And now an unsolved mystery, Shikemia Pate was just eight years old when she went missing from her home in Georgia on September 4th, 1998. She has never been seen or heard from again. As NPR's Jonathan Franklin reports, her family is still hoping for answers regarding her disappearance more than 25 years later. It's been over two decades since Veronica Pate last saw her daughter, Shikemia Pate. But she says she hasn't given up hope on finding her. She's been missing 25 years, but I still feel that she's alive right there. On the day she disappeared, Shy Shy, as her friends and family called her, was playing outside at the front porch of her family's home in Unadillo, Georgia, a town roughly 45 miles outside of Macon. Her older sister left to fill her car with gas before the family went to a local high school football game later that night. But when her sister returned home, she realized that Shy Shy was gone. At first, the family believed Shy Shy had gone ahead to the football game with a friend. But as night started to fall, Veronica says the family's panic began to set in. We got kind of scared because that was something we had never been used to. In the months after Shy Shy vanished, police and family members went from door to door across Unadilla, looking for any signs of her. Law enforcement from neighboring counties assisted with the initial search, while residents in the neighborhood where Shy Shy grew up opened their doors and helped the family try and locate her. But sadly, nothing ever came of it. Shaikemia would have turned 34 on October 29th, and despite all the years that have passed, efforts to locate her are long from over. Somebody out there knows something. That's Randy Lambert, an investigator with the Dooley County Sheriff's Office, who has served as the lead investigator on this case since the very beginning. He tells me that his office, along with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, continues to comb through old and new leads, hoping to make a break in the case. He says he hopes Shy Shy will return home to her family safely. 
We have followed up on those, contacted these agencies to see what they've got. Randy says that over the years, his office continues to receive several leads from across the state and even places as far away as Detroit. But so far, the leads have come up with no promising results. I kind of feel it may be one person was involved in this. In 2022, more than 546,000 people were reported missing in the United States. That's according to data from the National Crime Information Center. And while Black women and girls make up 7% of the U.S. population, they unfortunately make up roughly 20% of all missing person cases. Until you have concrete information as to what happened to the missing individual, we cannot give up hope in finding them. That's Natalie Wilson, the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing awareness to missing people of color. She says that time is critical in missing person cases, as the first 24 to 48 hours are the most important in the search. The longer one waits to file the initial police report, the more information in the search, such as forensics, can be lost. In Shai case, though, her friends and family quickly contacted authorities to begin the search for her that same day. And still, years later, investigators and national agencies continue to follow dozens of leads in the case, hoping that somebody will come forward with what happened to Shai Shai 25 years ago. Shai Shai's family deserve answers as to what happened to her. She disappeared over two decades ago, but we continue to hold on to hope that they will get the answer that they deserve, and we hope that it's to bring her home safely. After all these years, Veronica still hopes to reunite with her daughter, doing whatever it takes to bring her home. Even if she's fine and she don't want to come back here, and I just want that stamp saying she located and I never gave up looking for her. And no matter how long it takes, I'm not going to stop searching for my daughter. Jonathan Franklin, NPR News. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. But we start with a shocking development in the death of former Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson. Her family now planning to sue a major hospital network for medical negligence. They claim Johnson was left alone in a rehab facility, which caused a severe infection and led to her death months later on New Year's Eve. We just heard from Johnson's son for the first time, and Matt Howerton has more from our newsroom. Chris, as you, these allegations, they add a horrible taste to the bookend of the former congresswoman's life and career. And it all started with the lumbar spinal surgery in September of last year. Johnson, she started serving in Congress in 1992 and retired 15 terms later. She died on New Year's Eve in hospice care at the age of 89. That surgery in September, per a family attorney, was to stabilize her spine, quite invasive, from her L2 to her L5, meaning the incision would be rather long. Johnson's family says her surgery at Medical City Heart and Spine went great. She was up walking days later, but when she was transferred to a Baylor Scott and White Health rehab facility to work on recovery, things then went downhill. Her son said he found Johnson in bed needing care, asking for care, lying in her own feces and urine. And as a result, that incision wound, as we mentioned, per the family's attorney, became infected. And she had to be placed in intensive care then at, at Medical City, where surgery was performed again again to clean that wound, but the family says Johnson never recovered. She was transferred to a nursing facility and then hospice where she passed. Johnson was a nurse before serving Congress, a sad fact since these allegations surround negligence in a medical facility. The family's attorney even played a voicemail from a case manager saying they were sorry about what happened. And she went and found some of the nurses 
and came back and told me that they were in training and that they would be out shortly. It was at that point I said, I need to speak with someone else. Yeah, some serious allegations there and some evidence even offered to the press from Johnson's family today, including tests after her infection, showing that traces of feces and bile were found in the wound. Also, her death certificate, too, which indicates she died of osteomyelitis of the spine, a serious infection of the bone there. Baylor Scott and White sent us the following statement. Congresswoman Johnson was a longtime friend and champion in the communities that we serve, and she is an inspiration to all. We're committed to working directly with the Congresswoman's family members and their counsel. Out of respect for the patient privacy, though, we must limit our comments. I'll send it back to you guys in the studio. Thank you very much, Matt. All right, to get some more context on the rehab facility, let's bring in uh, our investigative correspondent, uh, Tanya Heiser. Yeah, Tanya, from watching this press conference, it looked as if the family was really trying to make a call for accountability here. That's right, Cynthia and Chris. That they certainly were. The family wants the rehabilitation center held accountable for that infection that they say led to the former congresswoman's death. And they, of course, believe that they have the evidence to prove it. That rehab facility is Baylor Scott and White Institute for Rehabilitation on Washington Avenue in Dallas. Now, it's operated by Select Medical Rehabilitation Services, and records show they are an accredited health care facility. Johnson's families will, however, find it difficult uh, to find accountability under the state's medical malpractice laws, which the state legislature passed back in 2003. That law makes it incredibly difficult for families to collect. And as her attorney noted, it sets a $250,000 cap on the hospital plus past medical bills. And even if you go to court and win an award for punitive damages, there are caps too. Now, here's her attorney. The law is the law. It's a terrible law. It, this is uh, an illustration of how unfair that law is, that a person like Eddie Bernice Johnson, who dedicated her life to service of others and was really an American hero, there's a cap of $250,000. Now, her attorney says they sent a notification of their intent to sue today. And there's also a 60-day waiting period where the family and the hospital will be trying to settle this before a lawsuit gets filed. It's also important to note that since Johnson died under the care of hospice, the medical examiner did not perform an autopsy. And the family also says they didn't do a private autopsy because they believe they have all the evidence that they need. Well, Tony, it's not physically you know, possible for family members to be present at all times. How can we make sure something like this doesn't happen to our loved ones? The unfortunate reality, Chris, is that when you have a, a family member in rehab, you do need to be present. So yeah. if you can't be present at all times, you need to coordinate with family and friends mm -hmm. because someone needs to be there. As, and that's what a medical malpractice attorney told me today. Someone needs to be there wow. to hold vigil. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Our thanks to you, Tanya Iser. And tonight we are getting new reaction from lawmakers here in North Texas, including U.S. Representative Jasmine Crockett, who succeeded Eddie Bernice Johnson in Congress. Crockett says she knew of Johnson's condition before her death. She calls the circumstances astounding, considering the former congresswoman was a nurse. She had really been a champion of everything around health care and science to kind of end up um, losing your life, you know, when you dedicate it so much specifically in this realm is really a, a tragic, very, very tragic ending to her life. 
Johnson was the first registered nurse to serve in Congress. She retired last year after nearly 30 years of representing the people of the 30th Congressional District, which includes areas of South Dallas, DeSoto, Lancaster, and Cedar Hill. Remembrance ceremonies start on Monday with a public viewing at the Hall of State in Fair Park. We will have much more team coverage on the death of former Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson and reaction to the family's intent to sue ahead on News 8 at 6. Population control. Population control. We have some news about the year that just ended. The world's population grew by more than 75 million people last year. Now that sounds like a lot, but the pace of growth is slowing. We know that the global population is likely to even out in the coming decades and then potentially even to start to decline. Rachel Franklin at Newcastle University in England studies trends among the 8 billion people now sharing this planet. She sees hints of our future in a country that has an aging population and a declining birth rate. What's happening in Japan is what's going to happen in lots of countries around the world in the coming decades. At least for a few decades, we'll have a lot of older people supported by sort of a narrower foundation of those who are in the labor force. As countries become more prosperous, their birth rates tend to drop. Many countries already produce fewer than the 2.1 babies that we generally say are required in order to maintain a population size. Now, in theory, a smaller population could be easier to manage. Fewer people might consume fewer resources and contribute less to climate change. But we can't really count on slower population growth to take care of that problem. So we could have fewer people in the world, but if their living standards increase at the pace that our living standards did for the past 100 years, we're still going to see a huge environmental impact. William Fry is a demographer at the Brookings Institution. That's a think tank. He says that in the U.S., immigration will determine future population trends. Just from a demographic standpoint, this country is very much dependent on immigration in the future to have sustainable growth. So in a time of declining birth rates, it matters a lot where people prefer to move. It's hard to know what fertility preferences may look like in a couple of decades. We don't know if younger generations may prefer to move more, and we don't know if we'll decide to increase the numbers of people that we admit into this country. And for this new year that is just getting started, the U.S. population is expected to grow by one person about every 24 seconds. That is taking into account birth, deaths, and international migration. Do you know why I was given this job? Because you're super duper smart. Yes, but why? Because you went to Harvard. Yes. Yep. But why would they want a super duper smart guy who went to Harvard? The first African-American and second woman to lead Harvard University resigned Tuesday after allegations of plagiarism and backlash over her testimony at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism last month. That's part of a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on college campuses. Claudine Gay's six-month tenure is the shortest of any Harvard president in history. Claudine Gay will remain at Harvard as a tenured professor of government and African and African-American studies. In a letter Tuesday, she wrote, quote, It's been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus, she wrote. The plagiarism allegations against President Gay 
were part of a campaign started last month, led in part by conservative activist Christopher Rufo, who cheered her resignation on X, writing in all capital letters, SCALPED. The conservative website, the Washington Free Beacon, published new plagiarism allegations against Gay Tuesday. One of the authors Rufo accused Gay of plagiarizing was her thesis advisor, Gary King, who's dismissed the allegations, telling The Daily Beast, quote, there's not a conceivable case that this is plagiarism. Her dissertation and every draft I read of it met the highest academic standards, he said. The Harvard Corporation issued a statement Tuesday saying Gay, quote, acknowledged missteps and showed, quote, remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks, unquote. Claudine Gay's resignation comes after the University of Pennsylvania president, Elizabeth McGill, also resigned just days after the two appeared, along with MIT President Sally Kornbluth, at a congressional hearing led by right-wing Republican Congressmember Elise Stefanik. On Tuesday, Congressmember Stefanik celebrated Gay's resignation on social media, writing in all caps, TWO DOWN. For more on all of this, we're joined by Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. First, if you can respond to and were you surprised by the resignation of Claudine Gay yesterday? Thanks, Amy, for having me on. Um, I, I have to admit, I wasn't surprised, but I was extremely disappointed. Uh, this is a terrible moment for higher education. Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania are just the beginning. The political attacks that you've just profiled uh, by Elise Stefanik and most other members of the House committee that held those hearings on December 5th have actually declared war on the independence, on academic freedom on the truth of American history and our present at all colleges and universities, just as Governor DeSantis has done in Florida and Greg Abbott has done in Texas and other governors and legislative bodies in many other states. This is the next step in now a three-year-long campaign to destroy this country's capacity to address its past and its present, to deal with the structural racism, the systemic inequalities that uh, cause premature death amongst uh, millions of Americans every year. Uh, and right now, the Republicans and their allies are winning. So, if you can put Claudine Gay's um, Gay in context, the first black president, the first black woman president, the second woman to lead Harvard University. Now, uh, her presidency is the shortest in Harvard's history. And put in the context of the whole attack on um, DEI, the whole attack on critical race theory, and if you can talk about um, this campaign by Stefanik, by Rufo, as they go from the congressional hearing, which didn't succeed in taking her down, uh, to this issue of plagiarism. Okay, well, let me start with the fact that Harvard's the oldest, wealthiest, most prestigious university in this country uh, and, and globally. So, for almost 400 years, uh, Harvard has uh, systematically excluded 
white women and people of color, uh, by and large, from its hallowed uh, corridors, uh, from entering its gates. That's just an absolute fact, a fact that the university under the previous president, Larry Bacow, uh, admitted to in a report called the Harvey, Harvard Legacy of Slavery Report that was issued uh, just over a year ago, a report that points out precisely how not only did the university exclude people of color from uh, getting an education, but in fact collected the bodies of indigenous people and enslaved people for scientific research and led into the 20th century calls for scientific racism that helped to construct the racial hierarchies that we still live with in this country today. That's Harvard's own history as a leader. So the very university that finally arrived at a moment where it not only reckoned with its own history, but also recognized that talent uh, is universal and that the best of us actually have the ability to move this country and world forward in a time when the planet is literally on fire and most people who will suffer most from that will be people of color. That's, that is the context that brought uh, Claudine Gay to the presidency, and she was ably and excellently qualified for that role. She had proven herself um, in previous administrative roles as deans of the, of the, a dean of the largest school on Harvard's campus. So when we put that in context, context, the affirmative action decision last June was the first victory for the conservative uh, right in this country to dismantle the very possibility that people like Claudine Gay would have the qualifications, the Harvard and Stanford degrees necessary to take on such positions. And so within that political context, the attack on affirmative action is one example of what's been going on, uh, which is 30 years old. a battle, but additionally, and more proximate to this moment, people like Christopher Rufo in late 2020, in response to George Floyd's killing, have initiated an effort, what we would call a white lash or a backlash, um, forms of misinformation to essentially define a body of knowledge known as critical race theory that is the intellectual. Um, basis for understanding how systemic and structural racism work as anti-American, as Marxist, as a threat to American civilization. And that led to 24 states criminalizing the teaching of history and all its truth about race, about racism, about sex, about gender. That led to the banning of DEI in places like Florida and to some degree in Texas. And what we saw happen here with this campaign against Claudine Gay where plagiarism became the pretext, kind of like a black motorist with tinted windows being stopped only uh, to look for drugs so that they could be uh, incarcerated um, as part of a war on black people during mass incarceration. That is the context where Christopher Rufo, who initiated the critical race theory anti-woke campaign, has now culminated in yet another victory uh, with taking down Claudine Gay over a very, very minor offense within academic uh, context. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. In other news at 10, disturbing video from San Pedro where a man wakes up to find his newly painted sports car vandalized with racist slurs and a swastika. And the victim says it is not the first time people of color have been targeted in his neighborhood. KTLA's Rick Chambers live in San Pedro with a story you'll see only on 5. Rick.
Yeah, Micah, while other vehicles in this man's neighborhood have also been vandalized in recent months, this one seemed more race-based and personal. And as you mentioned, it apparently has happened before. Uh, I couldn't believe that this happened to me in San Pedro. Reginald Scott is referring to the vandalism on his car. Sometime between Christmas and New Year's, somebody spray-painted his Mustang using swastikas and the N-word. They also slashed his tires. He says it might be a racial threat for parking in front of someone else's home. Even if you're parked where you're not supposed to be, I don't think that gives you the right to spray paint on somebody's car and call them a racial slur. That's, that's, that's hurtful. It's just wrong because they flatten the tires, they damage it, and it's just something that you don't want to see every day because, you know, what if that could be my vehicle? And Reginald Scott claims that this has happened twice before. Somebody set his truck on fire two years ago, and then... Um, during Halloween, they kept my truck tires and sprayed some stuff all over it to where I didn't... This is starting to up, and we starting to get um, scared being around here. So much so that he keeps his son close by and says that his wife now is scared. She don't want the doors to uh, be unlocked. She don't want to... Uh, she pretty much uh, is on high alert. The Scots say that they filed a police report, but now after 20 plus years in San Pedro, it might be time to relocate. If you think you'd like to help the Scott family, you can go to our website at ktla.com. We will have a link to their GoFundMe page there. In San Pedro, I'm Rick Chambers. Guys, I'll throw it back to you in the studio. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink under, tr under Trump on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is end stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Donald Trump started his first presidential campaign riding down a golden escalator. This time, his first campaign rally began with a song. Justice for All, featuring President Donald J. Trump and the J6 Choir. J6, as in January 6, 2021, the insurrection. The song features voices of alleged Capitol rioters in jail, recorded from the jailhouse, singing the Star-Spangled Banner. Three years after the attack on the Capitol, the former president has embraced the rioters, donated money to their supporters, and promised to issue pardons. Trump is also the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican presidential nomination. As NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach reports, the future of the January 6th criminal cases may hinge on the presidential election. 
Donald Trump calls January 6th defendants patriots and hostages. And he said he'd free them or give them pardons at rallies. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. He said it in campaign speeches. I will be looking at them very, very seriously for pardons. Very, very seriously. In interviews. And I mean full pardons with an apology to, to many, an apology. We found that Trump has said he would free or issue pardons for January 6th defendants more than a dozen times, including on social media, where he reposted a message that, quote, the cops should be charged and the protesters should be freed. Trump has said those pardons would come on day one of another Trump presidency. But he's been vague about exactly whom he would pardon, and the Trump campaign did not respond to my questions. Here's Trump on Fox News with Brett Bayer last year. Would you also pardon the people who were convicted of assaulting officers? Well, you also have, uh, no, we'd look at individual cases, but many of those people are very innocent people. They did nothing wrong. That scream is from a police officer being crushed by rioters wielding a stolen police shield on January 6th. The officer's gas mask is ripped off, his mouth bloodied, screaming in pain. That officer's name is Daniel Hodges. I was assaulted many times throughout the day. I was beaten, punched, kicked, pushed, beaten with my own riot baton in the head, crushed with a police shield. Someone tried to gouge out one of my eyes. Hodges is among the 140 police officers who were injured on January 6th. He said he could only speak for himself, not his police department, but he feels a moral obligation to keep talking about January 6th to counter the lies from Trump and his supporters. Hodges' physical injuries have healed, but his heart still races when he thinks about that day. It doesn't help that he gets death threats when he talks about January 6th or testifies in court. There was uh, people sending me, like, explicit snuff of suicides. and Like videos of people killing themselves. They yeah, yeah. To. And, like, pictures of my head pasted on top of instructions for how to strangle yourself. At times, Trump has signaled he would free every January 6th defendant which would include those convicted of assaulting police. He has also not ruled out pardoning the leader of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy and sentenced to 22 years in prison. Trump, heading into the 2024 election, has decided to go all in as the pro-January 6th candidate. This is Tom Jocelyn. He's a counterterrorism expert, and he worked as a senior staffer with the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. He's gone full steam ahead in praising and in his own way endorsing the January 6th rioters and extremists who attacked the Capitol. The director of the FBI, who was appointed by Trump, called January 6th an act of domestic terrorism. And the attack led to the largest FBI investigation in American history. Now, three years later, around 900 people have pleaded guilty or been convicted at trial of crimes from that day, from simply breaching the building to assaulting police, bringing guns onto Capitol grounds and seditious conspiracy. If Trump wins, he could use the pardon power to end ongoing prosecutions in these cases, free people from prison, and restore gun rights to hundreds of rioters convicted of felonies. Do you think Trump issuing these pardons could actually encourage further political violence? Certainly, by pardoning an untold number of people who committed violent acts, the likelihood of more violence certainly goes up. Special counsel Jack Smith has been watching Trump's comments and wants to use Trump's support for the rioters against him in court. Smith has argued that Trump's words show that he intended to use illegal means to overturn the 2020 election. Trump is fighting the charges, and it's unclear when that trial will move forward. If Trump wins this year's election, he has promised to use the government to get revenge on his political enemies and to act as a, quote, dictator on his first day in office. 
And legally, Congress and the courts have almost no way to stop him from issuing pardons. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian with New York University. She says the pardon power has been used by strongmen leaders throughout modern history to enable political violence. The purpose of the pardon is both to make people feel they're going to get away with past crimes, but just as scary is that it's designed to make future violence more possible because people will feel they won't pay any consequences. President Biden has condemned Trump's promise as a threat to democracy. Here he is at a rally in 2022. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't support law enforcement and call the mob that attacked the police in January 6th in the United States Capitol patriots. But Trump's message has gained traction among Republican voters, especially in far-right media where defendants are called political prisoners. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Outside the D.C. jail, where many of the alleged rioters have been detained, supporters gather almost every night. With liberty and justice for all. The group reads names of the people currently locked up. It's a list that includes people charged with assaulting police with a deadly weapon and seditious conspiracy. Regardless of the charges, this group chants hero after each name. Andrew Taki, Enrique Tarrio, Curtis Tate, George Kenny. The gathering is just around a dozen people, but they have influence. Trump himself actually called into the vigil back in 2022. One of the men currently inside the D.C. jail is Jacob Lang. Mind if I record our conversation? Yeah, no problem. Okay, great. I'm recording. Uh, Lang has been awaiting trial for years on charges that he attacked officers with a bat and stolen police shield. He's pleaded not guilty and has become a cause celeb in right-wing media. Even after more than two years in jail, Lang is all in on Trump, and he likes Trump's pledge to issue pardons. Well, it's a beautiful pledge. Um, I think it, but he said he wants Trump to commit to a blanket pardon, the kind that would free him, too. No Jan 6 are left behind. Bring us all home, Donald Trump. Bring us all home. For Officer Daniel Hodges, a blanket pardon would mean freeing the men convicted of assaulting him. So I asked him what he thought about Trump's promise. I mean, I hope some people would get pardoned and think, well, that was close. I'm going to stay as far away from, you know, inflammatory politics as I can from now on. But I think that typically a lack of consequences emboldens criminals. I see that in the community that I police. Since January 6th, some defendants have expressed remorse for their actions and denounced Trump. Others have gone deeper into white nationalism, conspiracy theories, and extremism. One defendant told me that when the FBI arrested him for storming the Capitol, they made an enemy. When a jury announced his guilty verdict, he yelled, this is how you radicalize people. For now, he's still in jail. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. Not the active shooter alarm, the fire alarm. They pull all of us into the three different counseling offices. We barricade the door, and all I hear is get ready to thrust me. And I run, and you can just see glass everywhere. Blood on the floor, 
I get to my car and they're taking me from out of the auditorium who has been shot in their leg. You can just hear the trauma in that young girl's voice. At 7.37 this morning, lives were forever changed, and as we later found out, one life was lost. We start tonight with a story no city, no community, or parent ever wants to witness. A fatal school shooting in Perry, Iowa. A family is grieving the loss of their child, as we now know that a sixth grader was killed during that shooting. Five others injured, including a faculty member. Today's shooting happening as the high school returned for its first day of classes. It's been a long day in Perry as the city, state, and nation waits for more information. There are so many questions and unknowns right now, and we are working tirelessly to get you as many answers as we can. There's a lot of information circulating online, and we're working around the clock to make sure the information we bring to you is accurate and it's fact-checked. Local 5's Megan McPherson joins us now live from Perry to break down what we do know right now. Megan, you have been out there since early this morning. What are the key takeaways right now? Stephanie, just four days into the new year, parents, students, and community members here in Perry have been struck by an unimaginable tragedy earlier today. Here's the latest on what we know tonight. Tonight, the tight-knit community of Perry, Iowa, is still in shock after a 17-year-old opened fire at the city's high school on the first day of a new semester. Officials say that an active shooting incident was first reported at 7.37 a.m. this morning, roughly 20 minutes before the school day was set to begin. Perry police officers responded within minutes. They immediately made entry and witnessed students and faculty either sheltering in place or running from the school. The suspected shooter is Dylan Butler, a student of Perry High School. Butler was armed with a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Responding officers also found an IED in the school, but thankfully, they determined it was safe. Numerous officers from multiple agencies were able to secure the school and verify no additional threats. Six people were shot. One of them, a sixth grader, was killed. That student was said to be eating breakfast at the high school and has not yet been identified. Five others were wounded Thursday morning. ABC reports Perry High School principal Dan Marburger is one of those injured victims. First responders were rendering aid to the victims who were later transported to area hospitals. Butler was found of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. His motive is still being investigated tonight as officials comb through a number of social media posts made by Butler. And as of this evening, four victims of this tragedy are in stable condition tonight at area hospitals. One victim is in critical condition, according to officials. And as this community begins to process what has happened and as we begin to learn more about the lives of those impacted by this tragedy, the Perry community shattered by gunfire is left to pick up the pieces. Stephanie. Megan, thank you. We appreciate that update. I know that a lot of non-white people learn a variety of things about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I know he was a victim of racism. What things do you know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said or did that we can use today to help replace white supremacy with justice? What things did he say or do that could help right. us? Yes, today. Um, well, one of the things... 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that he said that stands out to me is when he went to Memphis, he makes a statement. He says that I don't know what we're going to do with some of my sick white brothers. And I think that that was a pivotal statement on his part because he came to realize R-E-A-L-E-Y-E-S that he was dealing with something that was deeper than his original understanding. And so I think that's a great instruction for us. And the other thing that I learned from him is, and others, is this role of religion that has us under lockdown. There's a... A moment when Martin Luther King Jr. says that he was at his home And he got this vicious phone call late at night And Coretta was in the room with at least one or two of the children They were sleeping And he got this vicious call And, you know, they said they were going to blow up his house And he was just, I mean, it floored him. But he goes on to say that uh, Jesus told him to proceed, to move forward. And then he says, and Jesus said, he'll never leave me. He'll never leave me. He'll never leave me. But yet he was assassinated. Uh, Malcolm said he believes in Allah. And yet he was assassinated. And I can go down the list. So the question is the real role of religion in how it relates to applied liberation. Those are two of the things that I learned from Martin Luther King. As well as watching what's going on in, in Egypt. You know, they pray five times a day. And their prayers did not seem to relieve them from their oppression. It wasn't until they got up and went to work and got busy. And it's very fascinating that all of that took place in Liberation Square. It didn't take place in Freemasonry Square. It didn't take place in 5% Square. It didn't take place in Omega or Delta Square. And we can go down the list. It didn't take place in Christian Square. And what I, my point is that all of that is irrelevant to liberation from under white domination. So those are the two things that I, you know, can think of. But I greatly admire uh, 
Dr. King and his, and you know his courage, and I think toward the end of his life, he was assassinated because he was in the process of transformation. And there's a very famous picture of him, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., standing while Lyndon Johnson is signing the civil rights legislation. It's fascinating to me as Dr. King was there smiling over this, the passage of this legislation, that not too far from there, the FBI was planning his assassination. And it goes back to this idea that I spoke about earlier, that when someone knows something that you do not know, you are at a disadvantage and they are at an advantage. And the other, the last thing I'll say about Dr. King is that he taught us through great instruction what does not work to solve the problem once and for all. Context of White Supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 5, 2024. So I have been told. Mentioned it on the broadcast yesterday, that'd be Thursday. Uh, mentioned it since that was our first time back on the air this calendar year, uh, but said we would definitely make time uh, official on this week's compensatory call-in one day early uh, to recognize uh, the passing on December 28th of 2023, uh, the transition of Dr. Kamau Kamban. Try to be patient. I remembered... uh, I announced, I think it was right at the beginning of 2016, uh, almost, uh, what is it, almost eight years to the day after Dr. Welsing uh, transitioned coming on the air. And I remember some listeners saying that that was how they found, found out that Dr. Welsing had transitioned uh, was by listening to the cows. And I think some people said that they were driving and other things. So try to be safe uh, with revealing that sort of uh, information. Uh, But he transitioned on December 28th, 2023, according to the reports that I've seen. I think I said yesterday that he transitioned at 79, but he actually made it to full 80 years. Uh, Definitely not intended under the system of white supremacy for anyone classified as black. Victim of white supremacy, uh, Dr. Cambon, he was a guest on the cows uh, many times. Uh, over the years, um, I even went back and looked in the archives and some of his first few visits uh, were not in the archives, usual suspects. Uh, I was able to return those uh, and post those online so people can you know, share. Uh, in fact, his very first time visiting us on the program was for our two-year anniversary, February of 2011. He was here and was able to go over a lot of information. Importantly, I remember that he did that program 
after that. He came on many times afterwards as well. I think he was also here for our 500th program, which was later on that calendar year, 2011. Uh, he was also here for Christmas, so-called 2012. Anyway, um, I remember after his first visit for our two-year anniversary in 2011, about a day or so later, I uh, just checked in with him, make sure he had the link archive for the program. He's like Mr. Fuller. He likes to review, you know, when he is a guest on someone's program so he can critique, get better at his uh how he conveys information and uh, he said you know there were people who told me that I should not fool around with you don't talk to that guy he's trouble not surprised that is something that has continued for many many years in terms of people you know sabotaging the program and all the rest of it Uh, and even in spite of that he continued to come back and check in with us uh, for years. Uh, and he had such an influence in so many ways. I was even, I had to take time to think about it, referring to Dr. Welsing as a grandsister that came from Dr. Kanban. Now, also a grandsister. Uh, he, the research component, he was such, he was not one of those folks who took the position, white people lie, even though he did agree with that part, but he did not take the position since they are such master deceivers. I will not read the news, watch the news, listen to the news. He did not take that position at all. Every time I talked to him. It was about information. Did you see this in the paper? Did you see this report? Did you see this book? Did you see them talking about this? Blah, 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 blah. Information to solve the problem. He owned the bookstore in addition to having authored uh, a dozen books at least. But I mean, he he co-owned a bookstore right here in the States. He and his wife uh, for years reading more important than watching television and being informed about local national global system of white supremacy racism universal really got space station x elon musk all of that uh just so many where he almost always had uh resources and information i just referenced a book we were talking about uh reproductive rights mentioned that in the uh, news segments audio reports just was speaking with a cow's investor about fertility rates black people victims of racism black people particularly born in the US do not have high fertility rates and that's in Dorothy Roberts work Uh, we talked about that in a lot of different ways that's in uh, a terrible thing to waste Harriet A. Washington that's in medical apartheid too same author uh, but we also, Dr. Kanban said, oh, you should check out the book, The Death of Black America. And it t- talks about that exactly. That's what the whole book is about. Author was a guest on The Cows way back in 2011, September 2011, if my memory is accurate. But always about researching, studying. Uh, he even talked about taking his offspring 
to the library, in fact, taking them to college and university libraries, which is something I recommend. He said he would take them there and say, this is your competition. White scientists, scholars, doctors, race soldiers, this is your competition. accurate uh, man even I am uh, JFK got me had a huge impact on me and kind of uh, got me motivated or uh, was a, a, a key motivator with regards to me focusing on racism white supremacy because wasn't even born when he was assassinated and many 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 years later decades even but I, like many others, saw the footage uh, and saw it as a child on TV. Of course, so I said, no TV in the house. Going to be lots of violence on the screen. And it terrorized and scared me to death. Like, they killed a white man in broad daylight. White president, no less. Oh, my God. Can you believe this? Anyway, but as I did more research and study on that, and all of that connected to racism white supremacy and even Dr. Cambon with that. Oh man, you should check out the film Executive Action. Reading more important than watching television. This is uh, a movie about an actual event though, uh, about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In fact, that's where I got the sound clip where they have the really chilling moment where the read the basic the whole plot of this movie is JFK John F. Kennedy president this white fella is not operating the plantation correctly he's not doing the correct thing with civil rights heard about that in the audio segment LBJ was the vice president until Dealey Plaza but he's not doing the right thing with civil rights these niggers and then Vietnam he's acting like he doesn't want to bomb these slanides gooks Ah, slopes. Ah, he's out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole. In fact, in fact, in fact. Did we not just hear about population? I could have sworn they were talking about population and it's going to, what do they call it, plateau? Not going to have explosive population growth. That is exactly the point that they talk about that we've got explosive population of non-white people they will breed immigrate over here oh my goodness what are we going to do we got to get rid of JFK got to bomb these slopes and we got to control these niggers here Dr. King and such running around here acting crazy strikes and such executive action and that movie is not even talked about at all Dr. Cambon uh, let's see. What else can I say? Uh, even the uh, yoga retreat, I totally forgot. We went to uh, Virginia. No fun. But went to Virginia. We were able to do the first yoga retreat. That was per uh, Dr. Cambon's recommendation. Uh, we knew that that facility could work uh, and could host, you know, a good dozen and a half people or so and vegan vittles and all the rest of it. That was his recommendation. Uh, just man. 
influence over a long number uh, of years, lots of suggestions. I think we had some listeners uh, who reached out to him over the years and got some of his uh, books, the last book, the blackest book. He's bunches of them, tips for uh, subtle suicide, lots of books, all of them about racism, white supremacy. Again, he was a guest on the program many, many times. Uh, you can go in the archives. I did see that it was there already. Uh, he spoke with us uh, when Dr. Welsing passed. Uh, he spoke with us when Dr. Ben passed um, a number of different times. Uh, where he's kind of given some of his thoughts, uh, observations, suggestions uh, on things that we can, should be doing. Horror days, that was when we did the uh, 500th broadcast back in 2011. Uh, and he, instead of holidays, called it Horror Days. Uh, and talking about this. So, in fact, didn't we hear in the clips attempted black family in San Pedro, California? They said it really escalate, escalated for Halloween. Slashed my tires and messed my vehicle up. Horror. And they said, we are afraid. Horror days. Dr. Kamal Kambon. Lots more uh, to say about him. I guess one more that I'll say now, like more to say, you know, as we move forward in the days, weeks, all of that, there'll be lots more times, just like with Dr. Wells. It's not like we'll never mention Dr. Cambon again. We'll have opportunities to, one, make sure I go back in the archives to make sure all of his visits, uh, the archives are there. People didn't hear what he had to say. You can go back and listen. That was a teaspoon from his two, that one of his 2011 visits when he spoke with uh, that would have been an 11 year old justice uh, and talking about what he learned from Dr. King uh, but like never had a problem talking to justice he's an attempted father, attempted husband <laughs> no problem not one of the many folks who would get an attitude by talking to a child about these serious issues nope, I have children I talk to them about racism, white supremacy have their entire life uh, but you can go back and hear what he had to say in the archive. And that that is one thing. 15 years, our 15 year anniversary next month. That is one thing. Stand by our work. I am pleased that uh, if you look, you might just see really short sound clips that are out of context of Dr. Cambon. It'll just be some militant Negro, radical Negro, talking about killing white people and all the rest of it. Hey, <laughs> victims guaranteed qualified and counter violence is an option. Mr. Fuller has a whole chapter on counter violence. That being said, he does have a PhD, has written a number of books and has lots to say on a wealth of different subject matters. Uh, you can go back in the archives and Here's some of the many different topics that we covered with Dr. Cambon over the years. As I said, I have to go back. I think the uh, Christmas broadcast from 2025 I have to go, excuse me, from 2012. I have to go back uh, to make sure that that one is working correctly. Uh, even put that, you know, for contrast, we have individuals uh, admitted racist Timothy Wise who made a lot more coin than Dr. Cambon for going out and giving his views on racism, talking about Mr. Wise, admitted racist. Do a, a, a talk 
on December 25th talking about racism. Oh, we got stockings to unstuff and gifts to unwrap and chitlins to eat. You know, he's from the South Tennessee. So all that, like what? I have time for that on Christmas Day. Dr. Cambon, let's get to it. Not celebrating those horror days anyway. Dr. Kamau Cambon, grandsister, 80 years. 80 years. He certainly left lots of information uh, for us to read listen to research uh, try to follow his example in terms of being on our assignment to solve the problem black liberation from white terror domination I think that's how he said it context of white supremacy how he would end phone calls in fact every time black liberation from under white terror domination sometimes black liberation be the abbreviation anyway uh, Dr. Kamal Kambon we are on today Friday because today is January 5 following logic Tomorrow will be January 6th, Insurrection Day. We are reading Harry Dunn's Standing My Ground. That was a part of why we're reading this book at this moment, because I said, hey, we would be reading right during January 6th, three years out. And I said, well, it would just take a slight adjustment, and then we could actually do the book club on January 6th for emphasis. Now, I wish I had, you know, decided all of this a little bit earlier so I could have announced all that last week so people wouldn't have been confused about all of that and, you know, they can participate correctly and all that. I had some people discombobulated yesterday and they were ready for uh, the book club, not prepared for neutralizing workplace racism and all the rest of it, but it'll just be one week. So temporary, and then we'll be back to normal schedule. Uh, but all of the programs are the same broadcast time. So at worst, they would just be showing up and thinking, huh, what? I thought this was supposed to be neutralizing. Nope, nope, nope. Did that yesterday. Book club will be tomorrow, today. Compensatory call-in, catching up on the past week and what a week it has been. But again, I think important. <sighs> January 6th, so important. You heard Donald J. Trump running candidate for 2024 pardons and retribution talking about January 6 pardons and retribution white terrorism no one was even charged with domestic terrorism and that's what it was they didn't even charge old Enrique Torres non-white male they didn't even charge him that would be one I want to see you you going to pardon old Enrique Torres too because he's facing 22 years non-white person got the heaviest sentence easily out of everyone that's been charged and convicted so far non-white male more than two decades he getting a pardon blanket come on out of there hmm. so much to say about all of that especially uh, any of the folks if you do not think the events of January 6 are related to uh, the system of white supremacy racism definitely 
make sure you're tuning in, reading this book and or paying attention to, you know, it's in so many different articles and news reports and all the rest of it. Just, you know, pay attention to what they have to say about January 6th, especially if you have offspring so that you can tell, man, I said it yesterday. I would not want to be a black government teacher, history teacher, social studies teacher. We are in an election year. January 6th, three or excuse me, two years out, three, I said it correct, three years out. You have to explain this to middle school or high school students. I'm taking sabbatical. I'm going to catch you all in May (laughs) and get close to graduation so we can let the substitute handle all that. Anyway, we'll be here tomorrow for the book club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I cannot wait, especially for people who did not really pay attention to January 6th and and really do a lot of studying research on all of that. At least this book is really short. We will be done not tomorrow, but next week. Four sessions, all done. Super short. Written by a black male, Harry Dunn, Capitol Police Officer, privileged black male. You should, at minimum, study this book. Anywho, the what shall I say? Uh, one, Elmore Nickelberry, black male, privileged black male. He was one of the sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr went to Memphis, Tennessee in opposition to non-white staff members who told him, hey, we've got the poor people's campaign and you can't be distracted and you can't just be running off every time somebody tells you that racism, racism is everywhere. We don't have time for this. You know, Dr. King, we don't have time for this doc. Got other things to do. And he said, no, I'm going to go help these sanitation workers. Elmore Nickelberry among them. He just passed away this week. Race soldiers did not intend for him to be around this long either to be able to recount all of this. I did think it was kind of sad that he felt guilty because, I mean, Dr. King had been hunted for so long. This was way beyond the sanitation workers. And, you know, he wasn't killed in Tennessee. I think race soldiers would have just killed him elsewhere. So, yeah, as Dr. Cambon was talking about in his answer to justice. So, yeah, that was a little bit sad. Um, I don't know how much he knew about the Cointel Pro program, but yeah, I think he would have been killed, assassinated, regardless if he went to Memphis or not. Vietnam again. They got lots of scholarship about Dr. King's opposition to Vietnam also was a major factor in when he was assassinated one year from when he gave his speech publicly at Riverside Church in opposition to the Vietnam conflict executive action. Uh, Dr. King is even mentioned in that film executive action. Like that is a part of, see, got all these Negros uppity running around here. And then Dr. Excuse me. Uh, JFK is talking to them and all that. Oh, oh they all gotta go. They all gotta go. Ah, and they did. Uh, the report I thought was important where they talked about longevity has its place. And they talked about diet and exercise and quality air, water, all of that. A lot of things that, you know, we've talked about before that we know are important. They did mention alienation. And I thought that was important, too, because so much of, you know, the, our contact now is, you know, swipe, emoji, lol. You know, that's a lot. And particularly pandemic post, that is a lot of our human contact. A lot of folks struggle with that in person. Uh, contact. I even included the sound clip we from last week that was right in the middle of the so-called holidays. 
Uh, we had one of our victims dialed in and talked about just making a funny attempted joke, not even a racist joke. Just what a white person let you know. I said, what? What kind of racist are you? I'm disgusted. I'm done. I don't even want no more eggnog. You got racists in here. I got white friends. And to think you sit around here and talk like that, you heathen coon. Oh, oh, I'm done. <laughs> and they got and stormed out. So you have a lot of alienation because of the system of white supremacy racism. It's not about friends. It's not about homies. It's not about hanging out, doing constructive things. It is about mocking people. It is about fights and arguments. Matter of fact, so many things happened this week Mickey Mouse the copyright finally goes into the public domain Steamboat Willie now what happens do they show old Mickey Mouse do they show him helping people to read helping people hey, helping people to not overdose teaching about the dangers of opioids we make him current for our times old Steamboat Willie tell us about Narcan Tell the children, how about that, about Narcan, so that they can save themselves. How about that? No, 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 no. What did they do with Steamboat Willie? They made him a homicidal maniac a la Jeffrey Dahmer. Why do we need that? That's what we need. We waited a hundred years to get Mickey Mouse in the public domain to make him Jeffrey Dahmer with rat ears. That's white culture, man. That is white culture. That would drive you because that right there. And then even that, Fuller says that. So what is this longevity for? I'm going to live 100 years so I can be like J. Strom Thurmond, live to be 101 so I can practice racism, rape black children, grope females, make racist jokes. I need to be around here 10 decades for that. What's the point of being here for all these decades if you're not going to practice justice? Just saying. The speaking of being around for decades, they had the report in prisons. Autopsies generally are not done, especially if it is ruled natural causes. Michael Swango, especially the number of black people that they lock up. Ooh, we that is an environment ripe. Anybody you come in, you got a hangnail. Really? You got toothache? Really? Oh, you got a swollen foot? Really? Oh, come on in. I'll hook you up. You come back a week later. What happened to Leroy? Oh, he didn't make it. Really? I thought he just had a hangnail. Yeah, yeah. It was infected and he just went downhill from there. Metaphor. Really? From a hangnail? <laughs> like, how do you die from a hangnail? Lord works in mysterious ways. Swango could rack up, man. They probably don't look at your credentials too tough. You can be a white coroner in a prison. We got lots of Leroy's and Negro males raping white women and all the rest of it. Who cares how he died? Natural causes. Natural causes. Natural causes. We don't have to tell the family. John Jackson, privileged black male. Family just sitting around. What, what happened to John? What? what? Should have behaved yourself, John Jackson. That's what they say. Should have behaved yourself. See, nobody told you go out here being a criminal, thug, gangster, hoodlum. I couldn't confirm if Leroy Wilson, that was the other male listed in the report who died natural causes. I couldn't confirm if he was a black male or no. So don't know. 
uh, we went from there. Speaking of criminal Negroes, man, we're supposed to have a program on Wednesday and Sunday. Here at all the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. All the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Sunday, Wednesday. Wednesday, Dorothy Roberts is coming to the University of Washington. I didn't find this out until like two weeks ago. Dorothy Roberts has been a guest on the cows repeatedly. We're not homies. I'm not cool with I'm not on speaking terms with anybody. Uh, but she's been a guest on the cows repeatedly. She was here in 2009. We talked about her book, Killing the Black Body. Didn't I just tell you? She talks about how fertility rates for black people dropped because of racism. She talks about the history of criminalizing black females. You are a crack mama. You're having crack babies and you're going to jail. She is coming to the University of Washington on Wednesday specifically to talk about reproductive rights. Brittany Watts, that is a black female. They waited until way late in that MSNBC report to say, oh, yes, I guess it probably is relevant, important context that Brittany Watts is a person of color. They put that old niggerish language on it. It's a black female, black female charged for a miscarriage. You got to you don't have your papers, nigra. We don't have your papers, Matt. We're going to charge you for this one. Yes, yes, yes. Mutilation of a corpse. The masters of corpse mutilation are classified as white. But I said, dang, I see this with Brittany Watts. And then they're going to try and soft pedal it. They don't even make it flagrant that this is a black female that's being charged here in Ohio. Swang, go, go, Buckeyes. Dang, maybe I am supposed to be at the talk with Dorothy Roberts. I might have to juggle. I, don't, I hate doing that, like have to reschedule with the guests. But I might have to just tell them, like, dang, I was ready to roll. But I mean, she's coming to me. What shall I do? I'm at the University of Washington's campus right now. She's going to be right here. I'm not supposed to be here. Dang. I looked at the flyer this week, like, dang. So I might have to go. If I go, maybe I'll, I'll simulcast. But I guess if you're in the Seattle area, Dorothy Roberts killing the black body shattered bonds fatal invention we talked about all three of those books racism health over the years here at the cows killing the black body amazing you should have read it three times maybe but I did think about her with Brittany Watts black female Ohio probably more of that to come that would be another reason right there with everything that's happening and such and I mean do you really want to be in a position where you are playing around with sex then you get this child and we don't really want to have it. And I haven't really known Leroy that long. And, and then you haven't looked. Is abortion legal now? Do you want to read? Do you want all that? Do you want all of that? Question. Lots to talk about before you get to the bedroom. Speaking of which, uh, that was deliberately followed with the report on Shakimia Pate, eight-year-old still missing in the state of Georgia. We didn't hear anything good from Georgia. Old privileged black male John Jackson was in Georgia as well. He died in prison of natural causes. Shakimia Pate black female disappeared. When I heard that I was so chilled I don't have children but I was so chilled because I was like dang that's in Georgia that's not even that far from Atlanta and Atlanta child murders when we came on the air returned to the air in February of 2009 it was with the late Chet Detlinger 
his book that he co-authored, The List, about the Atlanta child murders. Dead black children in Georgia is a long time thing. Maybe we're concerned about it. Maybe we're not. Maybe we find you did it. Maybe we don't. Even with the Atlanta child murders, I bring that up so-called. Oh, that was one of the points Chet Detlinger emphasized with us all those years ago. The only two people that they got convictions for were not children. No one was ever not convicted. No one was ever even arrested for any of those missing children in Atlanta that began in the 70s and went on into the 80s. Not one person. That's the context for Shakimia Pate, eight-year-old, disappeared, never seen again. Black babies cost less. Uh, the whew, man, medical apartheid. I mentioned Harriet A. Washington, former Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson. A listener sent me that segment, former Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson just passed away. Now, I just said, let us do our diligence, right? Make sure research January 6th. If you didn't, you know, pay attention the first time around, totally understandable happens to the best of it of us. Uh, I can't say that I paid attention to everything, although I did certainly watch some. But, oh, man, as soon as they started going into some of the details of Eddie Bernice Johnson. And they said that she just left Congress, U.S. Congress representative down for the 30th district in Texas. I said, man, I wonder, was she present for the insurrection January 6th? Yes. What did the late Eddie Bernice Johnson, what did she have to say about January 6th? Newsweek, July 27, 2021. Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson recalled when the January 6th Capitol rioters made her feel like she was experiencing something similar to a war. Speaking with the Grio, the 85-year-old lawmaker said she hurried back to her office after voting to confirm then-president-elect Joe Biden's election win. Representative Johnson told the outlet she left the House floor as she was vulnerable to COVID-19 due to her age. But it was while making her return to her office that Representative Johnson said she saw members of the Capitol riot mob climbing up the walls of the building, old Enrique Torres. Speaking with the Grio, Representative Johnson said, we saw a few people coming and then we saw them scale the wall. We knew something was wrong. And I only encountered one who was just walking through the halls and he looked lost and the halls were pretty clear. I asked if he could be of assistance, if I could be of assistance. So he said he was just looking around. He had gotten an all expense paid trip to Washington and he wanted to see what it looked like. So I told him to have a nice trip, but I went in my office and locked the door. In a second interview with the Grio, Representative Johnson said she saw rioters gather outside the Capitol building from her office window. She said, and all of a sudden it went from 50 to 60 to hundreds and thousands. They said they've charged about a a smidge less than a thousand people. She said 
thousands. That's what it looks like in the reports that I've seen, too. And so we stayed locked in that office. Representative Johnson later continued to see all of this and people scaling the wall and breaking windows. It looked like a real war attack. And so surely it did affect my staff. And we were really in that office until three, four or five o'clock in the morning. She finally reflected on the member of the riot she encountered and added it never occurred to me that he was a part of maybe a group coming to tear the place down I will stop there but uh, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson present on the day of the January 6th terrorist attack that's how she gets to ride out her career and then medical apartheid you get left in your own bodily waste Jesus that's that reminds me in St. Louis I mean they didn't kill the people I don't think but in in St. Louis when they just closed down the uh, elderly care facility with no notice and it was lots of black employees I think lots of black uh, clients and you shut it down people were lost didn't know what was going on same type of a thing except uh, former congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson to just die a member of this is a member of Congress survivor of January 6 gotcha gotcha uh, I, when I heard this I said dang you think Dallas Cowboys because that was her area you think Jerry Jones take a moment to honor they want to talk about all that they respect the flag and they're patriots and all you think they're going to take a minute to honor Texas U.S. Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson you think they take a moment next Cowboys home game Mm. let's see Uh, man I cannot say enough um Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They said with Eddie Bernice Johnson, they did emphasize one of the same points that we did. Be present. That is what Vernelia Randall said. Be present. We've been saying that so much since we've been reading about Michael Swango. We'll be talking about Swango on Sunday. That's the Sunday program. Mike Swango. Not moving that one. Um, But that's what we talked about. If you got to go to the hospital, have someone who is not sick. Just be present. Try not to fall asleep. Ask questions. Be alert. See what they're doing. They said coordinate. That's one reason right there. Well, you can't be gusty renegade. You can't be curmudgeon and I don't talk to any of these. Because you get sick. You stay here long enough, you will get sick. Guaranteed. You stay here long enough, you're going to get sick. Hopefully you get better. But you stay here long enough, you're going to get sick. Have other folks. You all don't have to be the best of homies. But if you're a tempted family, we at least, somebody has to go to the hospital. They're going to be right there. We can make shifts. Figure it out. That one person, bang. We all read Mike Swango with the spicy chicken donuts. Okay, just sit and look. Be vigilant. Ask questions. If you get discombobulated, call. We can coordinate. Get us on the Zoom, WhatsApp, whatever it is. Text. We will figure out questions to ask, what to do, but have someone present. They get you isolated. That's when they. Ooh, Mike Swango get you by yourself? 
Let's see. I was so pleased. Man, the great Khalil Gibran Muhammad, victim of white supremacy, historian and scholar. He's the only person that I have said that I've heard publicly say it the correct way. He was talking about Dr. Claudine Gay, Harvard. He said Harvard has a history of excluding white women, non-white people. See how on time that ring was? Beautiful, beautiful. Now, even still with that, I mean, really, white women have taken over now. They don't need to be at the forefront. They have a history of excluding non-white people and even white women to a degree. That would be even better. But I mean, A plus, because the way that they normally give it, oh, they exclude women and people of color and eight thumbs down, eight thumbs down, which you really mean they're excluding white. It's not what you really mean to be accurate. Because it's suggesting that all the non-white people are males. You know that's not true. What you mean is white women. The logic. They exclude white women and then non-white people. That's what you mean. And they don't really exclude white women too much. I mean, really, get out of here. Uh, Anyway, in talking about Dr. Claudine Gay, one, I was curious now, the people that this means more to was Amy Goodman being truthful. Now, I guess some of this is these definitions are subjective. I guess it doesn't matter. But I did pause because I have heard some folks say, man, Dr. Claudine Gay, she is so-called Haitian. She's one of those pretend Negros and they got us again. My BFF, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, she said when speaking to Khalil Gibran Muhammad, she said Dr. Claudine Gay, African-American, first president, first black female president at Harvard. I said, hmm, is she an African-American? Now, she was born here, but she was born to two Haitian immigrant parents. I said, I don't know. I don't know. Does that count? African-American. I guess you could say she was born here. So I guess they could go uh, that route with it. Not sure. Not sure. Have to think about that one. Uh any rate, I think it is also important with the whole testimony before Congress, Dr. Claudine Gay and the two other white women, Dr. Claudine Gay, and I think even the two other white women presidents, one of them also had to step down. There was an attorney who was advising them with regards of what they were supposed to say or not say in answering these questions. I think that that is, (laughs) that should be the lead every time. It's not like Dr. Gay just got to get up here and, you know, whatever the question is, and I just get to think extemporaneously and whatever I want to say, that's what I say. You are being advised. Legal counsel is here, and they're kind of guiding you, steering you, if you will, on what to say, what not to say. Now, if they're guiding these responses, and then people get upset about the responses, why isn't the attorney being named? Why don't you give better counsel? To these questions and what have why are you up here telling people to say all this stuff and getting them in trouble man that's why we hired you paid you all this money for where'd you get your law degree from it's only been a few folks that really, i really hadn't even heard that until this week that it was they had an attorney who was kind of guiding them on you know say this don't say this boom 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 all of that like man come on come on if you don't like what i said then let's get a better attorney next time then i have better counsel he'll give me some better words better jargon so i can get up there and do it right Anyway, shortest tenure and all the rest of it, I suspect by racist uh, design. 
she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week where she talked about threats and racism that you've experienced. You can read that if you are interested. Uh, the And I thought it was important as well, that report from Democracy Now!, they used the word context nine times. Context was used in a variety of the reports today, but in that report specifically, nine times when talking about Dr. Claudine Gay. Context is important. Uh, last, I guess last one, then we'll check in. Folks have thoughts they want to share. Dr. Cambon, especially if you were able to hear him uh, on the program or pay attention to any of the other uh, tributes and things that people have made since they found out about his uh, passing uh, and or any of the other news, New Year, all the rest of it. Uh, the school shooting in Iowa. Context of white supremacy is the metronome. Now, we have been talking about Iowa quite a bit. End of 2023, right on into this year. We were just talking about Iowa. How many times I need this? Michael Swango was trying to go to school, med school, doing his thing out in Iowa, probably would have killed and poisoned spicy chicken some people up out in Iowa. We even really were talking about Iowa all the way back to Caitlin Clark, but whatever. That's way back 2023, ancient history by now. We were talking with Iowa then. Then we had old Paul Kicks on the program. Didn't he write that book? Civil rights movement, Birmingham, Alabama, children being locked up and all the rest of it told us about his black wife. All of that told us about growing up in Iowa, not in Perry, Iowa, but growing up in Iowa. Didn't he get huffy with us? I said, dang, Iowa, that whole state is like a sundown. Said, what do you mean, Gusty? Don't you get on here and talking sassy with me. Don't you get on here. I know I grew up. I didn't have a whole lot of black people around where I grew up. And that doesn't mean anything. And I love my wife. And she was so scared and going there. And my parents loved her. Don't you get on here and talk all that lip. Didn't I tell him? I said, that's all in James Lowen, Sundown Town, Iowa, which it is. I had to go and look after we got off the program, which it is. I could go look for Perry. In fact, I did look for Perry Current. I just didn't look for like archives of Perry. Perry, Iowa, where the shooting took place. 76% white in a town of approximately 8,000 people. Super small. Village, kind of. 76% white. Less than 4% white. Excuse me, black. Less than 4% black. Racially restricted region. Just talking about Iowa with all of these different folks and then we just talked all that about Columbine and these school shooters and the bombings they even had bomb threats all this week courthouses capital houses some people theorize this is collected to January 6th they're upset President Trump's name's not on the ballot in fact white man shot up the Supreme Court uh, the state Supreme Court in Colorado mad they think about President Trump's name not being on the ballot because of January 6th happened this week in Colorado. He shot out the windows and such. They didn't know if he put bombs there and all the rest of it. So Columbine. That was just this week. And then the school shooting in Perry, Iowa. And, and, and 
the 17 year old white male shooter is named Dylan Storm Roof. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not it. That's that's South Carolina. Wait a minute. The 17 year old white male shooter is named Dylan Klebo. Wait a minute, wait a minute. A little retarded. Let me get it. Third time. Here we go. 17 year old white male shooter is named Dylan Butler. third time that we get white killer Dylan, this Dylan also likes KMFDM. We had listeners who caught this. Dang, didn't we listen to them with Columbine? Yes, we did. A number of German industrial white rock bands. Yes, we did. KMFDM. In fact, I even said, dang, I even know what that means. The literal translation loosely is no pity to the majority. Loosely. I said, dang, that's even, that's so wowsing because it's a German white rock band and white people are a global minority. The majority is non-white. If you're going to be terrorizing and abusing them, Hitler style, then yes, no pity for the majority. Full of, what is it? Full of say the majority population on the planet, non-white people, we are worthy of great pity. Dill. Dill Klebold, Dill Butler, Dill. They're listening to no pity for the majority. And the specific KMFDM song that he was listening to was Stray Bullet. I said, dang, did he, and, 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 bomber man, he planted the explosives. I said, did he have a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook? They said he had the duffel bag and everything like Dill and Reb. Did he have the Anarchist Cookbook too? Did he write an essay about how he was going to blow up the school? That they had bullied him and treated him bad? Columbine. More of these come. We said that Angelin, Dr. Angelin Spaulding, she told us, more of these coming all of that connected to white genetic annihilation anyway uh, so much more I could say so many things happened this week Dr. Cambon and more January 6th tomorrow Uh, the number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943 pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate I do want to make sure I include last week for our compensatory call-in at the normal Saturday time. We had a listener who wrote in about trying to purchase uh, property and saying that there was a uh, Confederate flag on the property across the street from the property that she was looking at purchasing. And we were talking about suggestions 
would you still purchase the property if you are going to do that what steps would you take and we we're talking about different research and things that people would do and talking to uh, black residents who live there walking through the area right doing as much as you can going to the courthouse calling the police and trying to do your diligence we had a person who wrote in i think she called in too my fault a uh, black female caller who said she did dial in but somehow we didn't get her on the line could have been i messed it up could have been usual suspects she wrote in she said uh, and this was a single black female no children we talked about all this in the archives anyway she said uh, to the person trying to get the home should look up the confederate flag potential neighbor in their county's records most houses are owner occupied so one could find the name of the person who may be living in the property then they can perform an internet search on them facebook instagram linkedin etc also, since there was a black lady taking out the garbage, I would find out more information on her, as she may be the owner. If a lady is taking out the garbage, they are usually the owner main resident. As long as I lived in a house with a man, uh, father, uncle, cousin, they always took out the trash. Black male privilege. Hey, we did hear about uh, my man, Elmore, Nicholas, old garbage man. Get on out of here, you old privileged garbage man. and Take that trash with you. Get that banana peel, too. Uh, sorry, here we go. Uh, they always took out the trash. Even my dad, even when my dad visits, he takes out the trash. Bravo for dad. She can research most of the neighborhood before she moves there. When I purchased my houses, one in Ohio, Swango, go Buckeyes, and here in Georgia, I looked for different things. In Ohio, I wanted to live near my church, and so I looked to live in that neighborhood knowing black people would be there. In Georgia, I ended up finding a house in the same neighborhood that was that I was renting in. I knew it was a decent neighborhood because there was a Starbucks and a Publix grocery store since moved. In addition, there was a Panera Bread and other stores that you would not see in a bad neighborhood that might be i.e. Negro. Uh, they have added a family dollar since I moved here. <laughs> she put the frowny face. Uh oh, uh oh. That might be that might be signs of bad things to come. Uh, what do they call it? Foreshadowing. We normally have the book club already. Dang. So you lose the grocery store and gain a family dollar. Like uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> that might be white people or what do they call it? White flight. Like dang. What, Stacy? Tad, where, what, what? If the Panera Bread goes like up, ah, ah, it's a wrap. We're done. Uh, much abroad. Uh, uh, if anybody else has suggestions for potential black female home purchaser, let us know. That is super important. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up who are hopefully not too confused by a compensatory call in being one day earlier, you have commentary. Proceed. Hello. Can I be heard? You, you can go, go first. Go ahead. No, he just read no, my thing. Good. You first. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. All right. Well, good evening. Um, hi, Gus. Um, and hi, everybody listening. Ah. Okay. So there was something interesting. I saw a video on YouTube where this white young man, young or I don't know what age he was. He could have been a teenager. He could have been a young adult. He wanted to pinpoint where a non-white male, black, 
who I guess he uh, his picture being mean, and there was a specific type of birch tree or something that um, was in the picture. He was able to pinpoint exactly where that man took the picture. It's like some kind of forensic online research. That's the only way I can put it. I'm not saying that that's going to help this homeowner or potential homeowner know what's going on in the city as thoroughly as research and addresses and names and stuff. But it sounds like an interesting thing to do, like a little treasure hunt kind of thing. Maybe she could research how to, like, I don't know, like get some, it's all kind of stuff online that you can find out about an area that, you know, you wouldn't think is readily available. It's just, you just have to know how to refine your searches, you know. Um, what else? Check the court documents. Check the, the clerk of court for any, like, actions on it. Obviously, they they run a lien check before you're about to buy a property, but um, just look for whatever, you know, probate issues that might let you know if somebody died in the house, you know, whatever. Um, let's see. I want to urge all parents on in the Gulf South, particularly in New Orleans, Louisiana, and Mobile, Alabama, to consider not allowing their offspring to march in so-called carnival parades, especially considering 2024 is an election year. Like you said and read, people are highly upset that their guy is not on the ballot. There's potential for domestic terrorism on children. Um, you know, I'm not wishing it. I'm just calling it like I see it. I used to march in parades as a child, um, you know, during so-called Mardi Gras season. And we were offered alcohol by white people while we were um, at parade rest often during parades. So my mind is saying is if white people will go out of their way to offer minors six of their beers and drinks, perhaps they're willing to also target um children who are soft targets. Plus, on top of that, I feel we are overdue with the research about the so-called um, Roman and Greek pagan holidays in which I've concluded, you know, in hindsight that these are moving seances to their various gods that we are being um, captivated to facilitate on their behalf. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, forget Mardi Gras. I would say something else if you wanted on the air. Um, the next thing, interestingly, I cannot talk my very wise, astute, and legally proficient um, non-white black male friend from listening to Ramstein, Ramstein, and I did implicate to him that if they are uh a suspected racist group, and and he also knows that they were listened to by, you know, the the dynamic duel of white teenage of domestic terrorism. But he often offshoots or or sets aside racism and blames them from being just outcast, which causes the problem. And I'm just amazed by it because of how he's been treated. 
he's been unhoused for years, you know, had police called on him and, you know, all kind of stuff had to like participate in protests. And I'm like, you haven't concluded any, any connection to, okay, I like this. I just wanted to share that since you brought up that other group. Um, and it was something else I wanted to say. Um, I can't remember. I'm interested and I'm going to listen to the book study tomorrow for sure. And, you know, I, I'm not going to call the night, but this is going to be an interesting year. I don't know if I called in before the new year, but if not, um, happy new year to the best of our ability and everything, you know, um, and, you know, we'll talk some more. So I'm going to need my line now. Thanks. Thanks, sir. Much obliged, Irie, in Louisiana. Uh, before we nab uh, our black female caller in Georgia, uh, just on the no protests or no carnival for people if you're in Louisiana or Brazil. I don't know. They do that in a lot of places. The Caribbean, too. They do that in a lot of places. Um, large gatherings with lots of people, hundreds thousands I would probably avoid that Uh, I know lots of people are still dubious about COVID-19 no problem they're talking about other respiratory issues uh, being a problem this time of year it's winter anyway so they would be saying that even prior to COVID-19 they'd be saying that right so that and then it is an election year tomorrow is January 6th three years out and the racism white supremacy They're shooting up the schools. So, hey, lots of reasons I would not want to be out in any big crowds, large events. Uh, They're giving out liquor to minors in Cancer Alley. Mike Swango. Not just did you put a roofie in this, drug me and kidnap me and all the rest of it. Ronald J. Dominic, we did read that, which is exactly what he was doing. Oh, my God. He was putting roofies in drinks. That's exactly what he was doing. He was putting roofies in drinks and then taking privileged black males and strangling them and raping them and killing them. This went on for 25 years. Meeting black dudes at the bar. Privileged black males at the bar. Maybe after they've been riding a scooter. Um, yeah, I would not want to. I wouldn't want my child in that sort of environment. Uh, everything about that just sounds lame, racist, ripe for all kinds of terrorism and predators. Uh, the end, the large parties can't play everything. The LA Times, this was yesterday. Make sure my line. Ooh, today. Sorry. Uh, lured by social media imagine that 10 people shot at illegal LA New Year's party so tragic and they have a beautiful 26 year old black female on the cover she's so young she still has her braces 26 years old black mommy with a very very young child 
but shot at the party. That is in the tenant. No parties, man. No parties. This is why. No parties. This is what I would expect. Carnival and that sort of thing. The protests. Shots ring out. Bombs. Pepper spray. Who knows? That's what I would expect. No parties. Uh, black female caller, thank you for your patience and email, ma'am. Well, thank you so much for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Again, I guess I don't follow like I should because I was going to talk about workplace issues, but uh, one thing I did want to bring up at my workplace, not necessarily the racism part, I can say that for next week, but I know I keep talking about how I love my job. I love my I really do like the job. And one thing, because I did get promoted to this position, I'm always talking to people from different areas of the country. And so to me, that's good because you find out different things. And a lot of them have had different careers before they took this job, before they got, we all had the same job. And one, she's a teacher. And, you know, they also about teachers don't make any money. Teachers don't make any money. That may be true, I guess, certain areas. But I believe, I have to verify, but I believe she is in, she's in the southern area. I want to say Texas, but I know it's somewhere down down in the southern area around there. I know she did um, live in New Orleans, and she talked a little bit about being displaced and all that from, because of Katrina. Um, but she was saying that, I guess, as a teacher now, if she, some some jurisdictions, they let you come in with, like, a higher degree. You take the state exam, and because you may have a degree that's viewed more valuable than education, you can get paid more money. Um, and how you know, the work is changed, you know, you should do all your work at at school. And then the home, she's like, it's designed. And she teaches special ed high school students. And she was like, it's designed. I guess the way it's set up now because of the computers. And I, I think she's at a decent school. I don't know because she said there's a computer in every classroom assigned to the student when they come in the room. And she talked about the notebooks. You know, I just have a negative opinion of the notebooks, not taking any books home. But, you know, they don't ask me what I think about that. Um, and so if you can get a position, you know, where you can talk to people from various areas of the country, like I found a little bit about the shooting because someone's like, oh, yeah, I live in Iowa. They told us about this. They didn't go into detail because I don't think they knew. They just found out about it. So that, that was good. And some of the things you talked about, I didn't know about the young lady that was missing that's not too far from central Georgia because I do live in central Georgia. But I do know there's a story here of another She's a young adult lady, and she's been missing for a while. And they were like, the family's still looking, still looking. And she's like, they were like, they believe the police have given up. But, you know, you keep being persistent. That young lady is also, will definitely be classified as black. And how, you know, kind of we have to be persistent in finding our own. We as black people, especially if they're your family members, have to be consistent in finding and looking for their own. And I believe not too long ago, I told, when we talked about diabetes, I talked about the young, the pastor's daughter, the young lady. Unfortunately, she succumbed to her injuries, I mean, to her condition. And poor thing, she was, I think at the end, she was in a real terrible state. So, you know, she, 
I don't think she made it to 30. She might have been 30 in the middle of the month, but she didn't make it. Um, so, yeah, very, and be very vigilant, even if you have a young child, because she said, you know, she was missing doses or whatever it was while she was young. You have to really make sure, you know, for your child. So, you know, you be their parent first, their friend leader, whatever. Really be diligent, making sure that they um get the nutrients and if they have to take a medicine, because I believe she has type 1 diabetes, which you're born with. So, you know, make sure they're diligent and things like that in their health. And um sorry to hear about the passing of Dr. Campbell. He was very, um had a lot of great things to say. He may not agree with everything he said, but for the most part, a lot of great things to say, very constructive and helpful. And I was glad he was able to contribute to the program as many times as he did. And he seemed, you know, I don't want to say pleased because, you know, talking about racism is not necessarily a happy thing to do, but, you know, definitely willing to share his views to help black people overcome this, um, overcome white supremacy. And I think that's all I have to say right now. So thank you so much for taking my call. Have a good evening, everyone. For sure, uh, black female caller, definitely pleased to share his views. Um, Try to do what he could to help black people, victims of white supremacy, uh, certainly here at the cows and throughout the world. Um, that is that. That's why I said Dr. Cambon now. He lived 80 years. That is not intended. So, I mean, you know, kind of to a degree, bravo. He did talk a lot. He even wrote eating well, going to bed. He emphasized that all the time. Go to bed. Don't be up late. Go to bed. Sitting up all night long. And if you have that melanin, you have to go to bed, recharge. That's how your body, your immune system, everything is so important for healthy aging. Go to bed not being out in the streets 10 o'clock and he would even put that together one being outside ripping and running being at the illegal underground party in LA that is not safe or good for your health especially if bullets are whizzing by and you need healthy circadian rhythms go to bed he talked about that all the time but what is intended is, oh, yeah, I don't think she made it to 30. That's what's intended. Yep. Racists sit around and high five. That's what we intended. Yep. 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 Missing medication. Yep. That's what we intended. Yep. Shortages. Can't afford it. Got furloughed from a job. So you had a lapse in your health care cover. Yep. That's what we intended. Dr. Welsing, she used to say all the time, matter of fact, give it to you both ways. Dr. Welsing, we do not qualify for mental health. You could probably just take the mental off of that. If you are subject to victim of the system of white supremacy racism, you do not qualify for health. the other side I said I can give you to you both ways the other way Neely Fuller Jr. says I have nine areas of people activity why health is not there he said I faced vociferous calls from many non-white people over the years why don't you have 10 why don't you have health up there 
he said almost exactly what I just said. Hey, if you are subject to racist white supremacists in all areas of people activity, you do not qualify for health. I got your health. That's what the racists say. I got your health. What are you talking about? There is no health for you. Do the best you can. And I would submit, hey, if you're going to have children, it might sound like I'm just talking and being goofy and all of that. I am so serious. Dr. K. Oh, I should probably do that. I'll do that for a minute. I see the other people that dialed in will nab them too, but I'll make sure I get this one in. You say that all the time. Our people are very serious about not being very serious. Meanwhile, white people are very serious about playing hardball against us. And this hardball is called genocide. Dr. Kamal Kamban, context of white supremacy. But if we're really serious the most serious activity is producing a child that is going to be classified as black. I mean, it should be super ultra serious. No TV. That is such a destructive, powerful force of white supremacy, racism and poor health decisions. So much of that content is centered around poor diet. I mean, it would be different if they had lots of commercials for like uh, recipes for chickpeas, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, green beans, yams. That's what they were talking about, eating beans, unsalted uh, pistachios like the rioters were eating. If that's what they were talking about, that would be different. That's not what, you know, the commercials and content that they have on television. It's Chips Ahoy cookies, milkshakes, McDonald's, Hot dogs, beef, hamburgers, pizza, chicken. They had an article. They had an article. I think it was in the New York Times. I might have the wrong publication, but I know what it was about. It was about in the U.S. specifically, we are using up water already limited. We're using up the water for chicken and pizza. chicken, cheese specifically, but most of the cheese that we consumed here in the U.S. is on pizza, using a disproportionate amount of water in the U.S. to raise chickens and then cheese for pizza. Absurd. Culture of racism, white supremacy. I said that right there. I even, I put it on social media. They serve chicken and pizza together in so many restaurants. Brag about that. Man, they are about, oh my God, I can't believe I, I will hush my mouth, let other people dial in. They are about to go ham. Do they still say, do the children, do they still say ham? Maybe they don't say that anymore. That's the fogies. But they are about to eat all of the chicken wings and pizza you can imagine. Any other time, I would have mentioned it already. I am at the University of Washington right now. In three days, the University of Washington's undefeated 
tackle football team with a Negro quarterback, no less, who was runner-up for the Heisman, will play the undefeated University of Michigan Wolverines in the final college football playoff championship in the four-team era. Monday night in Texas, GTT. I cannot believe it. There could be an undefeated team right here with a Negro quarterback. What in the Warren Moon? And I had to bring this up. Man, the Negro quarterback, Heisman runner-up, his name is Michael Penix Jr. P-E-N-I-X. Penix Jr. Do you know how they mocked him during the exciting semifinal contest just a couple of days ago they called him Michael Penis what in the Dr. Welsing and this was not like a one or two people calling him this began trending on social media Michael imagine that your crowning moment to this point I mean he could be undefeated national champion by this time Monday night still be a victim of white supremacy but just saying your crowning achievement national television this is the way you get mocked black male always always the man not black male pain not privilege black male penis Dr. Welsing say why is it always somebody gets always on the black male penis I guarantee you it is going to happen again on Monday night circa 5 p.m. Pacific time 8 p.m. Eastern I don't know I have to look to see what time the game is but go look on social media I guarantee you white genetic annihilation other folks who dialed in commentary to share proceed may I be heard Lauren yes ma'am Evening, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I I didn't know neutralizing workplace racism was going to be yesterday. Um, but just in my workplace, a few things to share. Um, we've been out. We've been without a secretary. I don't know why I'm saying we. There's no secretary in the office, and uh, there hasn't been one for like I don't know, maybe a year. And we got a secretary for maybe two or three pay periods, and this lady interacted with the white woman that I work for and just went back to where she was working first. She just left. So uh, they've been trying to get a new secretary. They call him an admin person. They don't call him a secretary um, for the last several months, and they put out a job, a, a bid for this job. There's 12 people who applied for it, and 
they're trying to choose who the admin person is going to be. So they decided that uh, three people would do a resume review. Super interesting because it's not a lot of white people who work in the office. It's a lot of non-white people. Um, I've actually never, I haven't been in a workplace, you know, like that in a while since I was really young. Um, but there are three white women who work in the office and all three of those ladies are going to do the resume review to choose who the admin person is going to be the person who's going to get hired. Um, also today I went to the doctor and I was uh, talking to a, a white lady in the doctor's office, a nurse, and she was talking about her offspring. And, you know, she said, that, you know, her daughter is like six years old and she is perfect. And, you know, she'd want to cuddle. And, you know, how can she tell her that she doesn't want to? I thought that was super interesting, this white lady, you know, with this perfect child who she doesn't want to hug or cuddle with. Um, as far as the segments that were played, the prison part, um, the inmate in Missouri, you, you know, it takes him weeks to be treated for bleeding in his digestive tract. Um, another person having stomach pain for a year and a half. And then, um, you know, in these conflicting messages that the uh, so-called family members are getting, you know, there's nothing to worry about. There are signs of life and things are getting better. Uh, and that's not true. And uh, one of them, he said two weeks after his collapse, he died. And then another one, like, he, well, no, that was the same guy. He said he hadn't received help for almost 10 minutes after his collapse. And, you know, you don't attend to someone for 10 minutes and then you say you go get him and put him in a bed you know um I, I don't think well let me just say attention is not help you know if you take someone and go lay him in the bed but you don't give them medical attention that's not actually help in my view and I also uh I have a black male associate who was just released from greater confinement and he was telling me that they were doing experiments on the prisoners that he was in and that there were several, like numerous um, inmates that had prosthetic penises. They didn't have penises for some reason. I don't know what to make of that. Um, let me see. Brittany Watts, the, the black female in Ohio. I Right now I am reading uh, Killing the Black Body, so I was definitely thinking about that. You know, she's facing criminal charges for abuse of a court. Um, but when I was looking at uh, the article in the New York Times, it was saying like that they don't actually have a, a definition for a corpse. I mean, this lady, she goes to the hospital two times to try to get help. They won't help her. She goes back to her residence, miscarries. You know, this has to be such a traumatic experience. She goes back to the hospital. You know, they do a, a DMC, remove the placenta, and then the hospital are the ones that call the police, the, the Warren City Police Department, about the miscarriage and the need to locate the fetus. That's what they, they put that in um, quotation marks. And it's just, it made me think about that uh, white woman, Nurse Brown, who was at the hospital uh, sending all those black females to jail uh, for having crack babies. I, it's just terrible. And 
And I just don't know, you know, they said if they were in the hospital, if she would have miscarried at the hospital, they would not have treated that fetus as a human body. And it would, would seem like a white man in the article. I am not sure. There was not a picture. But, you know, he, he said from a legal perspective, there's no definition of corpse. And can you be a corpse if you never took a breath? And I think that is a really important question. Man, hmm. white people are constantly trying to hmm, criminalize black people having babies. I think that's that's the best way for me to say it. Um, let me see the the part about the 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 congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson and the back surgery. Gosh, that was that's so sad, and I, I didn't even know about it. I'm really you know, this program really helps me because it you know tells me about things that I missed in the news. So I really appreciate that. I. I also noticed um, when the professor, uh, Khalil Gibran, when he talked about Claudine Gay's situation, I noticed how many times he used the word context. And um, and he said, in this context, white people want to make it to where black people don't have the degrees to qualify for this sort of position. And I think that's very important for us to think about. Um, the black male who who woke up and, you know, his Mustang had been spray painted with swastikas and racial slurs. They didn't say what the racial slurs were exactly. I'm just assuming nigger, but I don't know. I guess it could have been anything. Um, he said, I can't believe this happened in St. Pedro. I don't, I don't know what that means. Like white people can practice racism in any location on the planet. Uh, you know, they've been doing this for hundreds of years now. Uh, you know, we keep saying, and I can't believe this is happening. It's 2023 or it's 2024 or it's San Pedro or, you know, Seattle, Washington. They do this all over. They do it in China. They do it in India. They do it in Africa. It's everywhere. Um, Donald Trump in the January 6th choir, the J6 choir, that, that segment was, he said the cops should be charged and the protesters should be set free. And, you know, they talked about Daniel Hodges. This is a law enforcement officer. This is a white man. So he's punched, beaten with his own baton. Somebody tried to gouge out one of his eyes. And Donald Trump is saying he should go to jail. And, you know, and white people, what I assume was white people, since not films to him of people committing suicide, man, white people are cold. At their most creative when it's time to destroy. Um when they were talking about that school shooter in Iowa, Dylan Butler, at the end, it said his motive is still being investigated. We exist in a system of racism and white supremacy. I, I, I don't know. Um, I also, I had a question. Um, the, it's a lady. She sounds like she's from the area of the world called India, um, who does these reports. She talked about dry January on today's program. What is her name and what's the news network that uh, she works for, Gus? Much obliged, Lauren. The news network is First Post. Uh, They're on YouTube and presumably 
they have a you know channel and all that good stuff uh, now they have a variety of reporters uh, it's not just one uh, non-white female who does the news segment uh, the specific report that we heard today about dry January uh, and even that report contained uh, two different females but the lead announcer uh, Palki Sharma and she doesn't do all the reports that I've played from first to post, but that's the network, uh, Indian News Network. Thanks. And that's all I have for today. Much obliged. Lauren, uh, the January 6th choir, I thought that was such amazing terminology, choir, because it could have been band or whatever, but choir religion of white supremacy I saw officer Hodge in fact I was so glad to hear his commentary even that's interesting though because a lot of the officers were black but either way Harry Dunn reading tomorrow lots of folks confused and didn't know so on social media you can always check uh, Twitter X Facebook as well. Folks know other places that would be great to post. I'll post there too. Untiljustice at gmail.com at untiljustice at gmail uh, or excuse me, at untiljustice on X, at untiljustice on X. Anyway, um, hopefully folks won't be too discombobulated. And again, all of this because January 6th, so important. Congresswoman Bernice Johnson, Eddie Bernice Johnson, was a victim of all she said she thought it was war it is white people scaling the walls Enrique Torres coming to get us anyway uh, when she mentioned the prosthetic penises I was reminded uh, we did have the white author of acres of skin and sentenced to science as a guest on the program uh, he talked about the years of what should we call it? medical experimentation and torture of but it was mostly black prisoners in Holmberg prison in Pennsylvania, right next to uh Philadelphia, shout to Mamiya. Alan Hornbloom. Alan Hornbloom, that's his name. He was a guest with in fact we got one of the black males privileged who said he did some of the experiments they would give you a little bit of money and all that I have no idea if they're doing that sort of thing now with the prosthetic penises if it's an experimental thing is this a sign up do you get extra cornbread if you do the prosthetic penis experiment who knows man uh, <laughs> acres of skin sentenced to science you could read those three in a row like or four in a row read those and then Dorothy Roberts killing the black body Harriet A. Washington Medical Apartheid. Whew. Lots to think about. That's that's why I said Brittany Watts. That's why I said Dorothy Roberts. Oh, it's one of the first programs that we had once we got back on the air. Dorothy Roberts. I said Dr. Cambon was here for our 500th program. I think that was like his third or fourth visit. Dorothy Roberts, she was here, I think, in the first 50 once we got back on the air, killing the black body, 
so important. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in that we missed totally. Uh, if you have workplace racism, feel free to share. Uh, workplace racism used to be a part of the compensatory calling, so you always get that in. Nick over the road, if you have commentary, proceed. Sir, can I be heard? Uh, lots of black self-respect. Uh, speak up and or if you can get a little closer to your microphone, that would be great. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe this is better. Um, uh, let's see. First, I wanted to speak about some safety things. Um, I'm maybe a little late, but it's winter time, and um, I want the cows callers to uh, make sure that they get the heater filters changed and um, get their uh, smoke detectors and carbon monoxide batteries switched out. Um, I got a call from one of my old coworkers, and um, he was kind of a little distraught about finding a family that was um, uh, deceased in their home due to their carbon monoxide detector not working. Um, so I want the cow's family to, to do a safety assessment on their home, especially around wintertime. Um, for the cow's caller that was um, looking to purchase the home. Um, one thing that I know is that you can do, or go to your police department that's in that area and do an address records check, and they will run the address of the home that you want to purchase to see what kind of activity was there, um, police and fire activity. So you can get a gauge on um the history of the home in regards to police activity. And you may even be able to run that neighbors, that neighbor across the street. You may be able to have them run that address and get information on that person. Um, let's see. Oh, Nick. I mean, um, Gus, I was listening to um, NPR and um, they was talking about Harry Dunn. And um, I guess he's deciding to run for Congress. Um, so, uh, you may, you may find something on that, something about him wanting to have his voice heard. And I had a lot of thoughts about that, but, uh, I'll let you find out something on that. And, um, let's see here. Home births, man, I really, it really gets to my chest when it comes to our babies. Um, home birth, please. I know we talk about homeschool, but please consider home birth. Get a mid a midwife. Try not to have your children too early, where it may be a financial strain, and, and um, pre-plan to have a midwife and have your child at home. Um, Doctor Francis says no children before thirty. You know, um, and plus being in these hospitals, we know about the maternal mortality rates um, in these hospitals. And outside of home birth and homeschool, for those of us who have children, um, I tell us to practice extreme access control to our children. Be very careful who you have around our children because they pick up very bad habits from them. And also to teach them the tools that they need to navigate this world. Um, teach them, train them, assess them. Um, let yourself be an example of using these tools um, so that they can navigate this world and always be available when they leave home. Always be a available to be proper counsel, you know, a proper elder. And um, one thing about 
one thing about the racist white supremacists, Gus, is that um, the stuff they do to us, they do to each other. And um, I find that a lot of us want to try to befriend them, and I think it may be out of fear. They want to be, um, like, um, friendly with them, hoping maybe that they won't do certain things or those um, abuses and subjugation to them. But I think that it just make, um, it make non-white people more accessible to them for them to do these things to because they definitely don't have a problem doing it to themselves. And uh, thank you for letting me speak. Uh, I yield the floor. I'll mute my mic. Much obliged. Nick over the road. Uh, a number of outlets uh, do have uh, Harry Reid, author for Standing My Ground, uh, his announcement that he plans to run for Congress, uh, perhaps uh, they do have that announced. So, yeah, his book might be a way to make sure people know his name as we move forward. We shall see. He has racism at the forefront of his campaign. At least that's in a lot of the reports where they recount the part that we read last week about him saying that he voted for Biden. And it's like, boo, Negro, boo. That's why we're here. Negroes like you, boo. They have that in a lot of the reports where they talk about, yes, he wants to run for Congress. Um, we did hear lots of difficulties, black children, black mommies, uh, having children is, is such an enormous responsibility. Part of that home birth, you even want to be in a hospital doula, all of that, but that's, you would need to have lots of conversations and research in advance. You don't want to stumble into whoops and find out, you know, weeks down the road and what? Pregnant? What? What? And now you got to be scrambling and all that. Come on. Come on. We've seen generations of that. Racists love that. Love that. We will stomp on these niggers for two, three more generations. Exactly what Irie talked about. We have the little children out at the carnival and such. Oh, you want a little taste, honey? Want a little taste, buddy? Little fella? Got him again. As usual. Anyway, uh, discombobulated this week again because tomorrow is January 6th. Harry Dunn. So much to discuss. Uh, especially if you did not grasp how racism, white supremacy is connected to what happened. We will continue reading. There is so much material about all of this and all of this is still unfolding. They have arrests pending and white people on the lamb. And I mean, wow, so much to say. Anywho, uh, we'll be here Saturday, Catherine Massey book club, 8 PM. Eastern 5 PM Pacific third installment penultimate because the book is not that long so we'll wrap it all up next week but super looking forward uh, and we'll get to hear direct commentary from many of the black officers uh, who in fact we can wrap the segment where they talked about officer Hodge I think I, if I remember his name correctly white officer who said they were trying to gouge his eye out that day so many people including 
Harry Dunn use profanity when they talk about January 6th, man, it would be really challenging for me to keep it G-rated. Say, so, well, the the fella had his thumb in my eye, and I said, fella, uh, I sure would appreciate it if you. What, golly, you your your thumb is still in my eye. Golly, uh, fella, uh. I sure would appreciate it, fella, if you if you could get your 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 finger still in my eye, sir, sir. Your finger is still in my eye. Now, even if I could keep my composure to where that's about the way it sound sounded, you know, live time. Whew, man, it it might be challenging, you know, if I have a flashback and you know, get your filth foreign hand out of my eye. <laughs> I could I could see how you might get you know a little riled up in retelling all of that that no cursing is in the 10 stops anywho uh january 6 book club tomorrow where and we'll be here on sunday as well 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific my apologies to the people who got discombobulated should have decided earlier to make the switcheroonie and then i could have let people know sooner We'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I don't know. Depending on how many times they call Michael Pinnock's penis on Monday night, I might have to at least say a word about that, uh, regardless of who wins the tackle football brain damage contest. Uh, and then, yeah, but uh, Dorothy Roberts killing the black body, University of Washington, Wednesday. We'll have to see. Uh, yeah, I have to see if we can do another flip-flop and do that too. Sobriety would be best. Set an example for your children, other black people that see you. Health. Hey, we can be healthy. We don't qualify, but we can do as much as we can to not exacerbate an unhealthy situation. Get that exercise in. Be around people that are constructive, talking about constructive things, not name calling and gossiping, eating constructive things, healthy foods, not all that grease, chitlins, Cheetos, tater chips, lots of beef. What is it? Chicken, pizza. Come on. Fresh fruits, veggies taking good care of ourselves sobriety drink more water no alcohol they heard that dry january put that drink down creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey.